Let's face it, nobody wants to suffer, but the same token, certain sages suffered happily. How could that be? This week's Parashat Bamidbar discusses all types of things about the senses of Am Yisrael in the desert. But from there we learn about Emuna, Bitachon, and even the value of suffering. After that we go to a realm of questions from people around the world that are asking things that are relevant to everyday life. One of the questions is the very famous question that is often misunderstood and even more often misexplained, which is, why do men say in the morning, thank you Hashem for not making me a woman? Does that mean that the woman is less than a man? Shouldn't that be changed in this more equal type of society? Is equality part of the Torah? What does the Torah say about social media? And many more other interesting questions you're certainly going to want to know about. Enjoy it, share it, donate if you can, and push yourself even if you can't. Because at the end of this shiur, certainly you'll be a little bit holier. We're back here on our Wednesday night uh, shiur Torah with Stump the Rabbi, where after some Dure Torah that are relevant to the weekly Torah portion or something that's going on in life, you guys will ask some questions and Bezot Hashem HaKadosh Baruch Hu will give me some answers and uh, will give you chizuk, give all of us chizuk. Tonight's show is going to be for the Refua Shlema for Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat, Rabbi Fein Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Levana Bat Sarah, Avi Mori David Ben Esriah, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jorah, uh, and uh, all of Am Yisrael and all the righteous Noahides that continue to watch us, continue to share, continue to donate, and uh, help us with all the wonderful things that we're doing. A, a reminder for anyone that wants to support our work, which is all done for free, whether it's the lectures or it's the books. Uh, in so many words, the uh, uh, people that uh, are uh, benefiting from everything, they're benefiting because people donate. So anyone that wants to be part of that uh, process and uh, be a partner, and all the extraordinary Torah that we share around the world, uh, by all means, you can go to our uh, website, bezratashem.org, or you can go to bhtorah.org, or you can go to the Kiruv store and get some free stuff and also donate, which is bhkiruv.org. Uh, so, with that being said, we have, Baruch Hashem, a uh, lot of interesting information. I'm going to try to uh, do my best, Bezat Hashem, to uh, keep it short so you guys get as many questions as possible because I also have another lecture later tonight in Hebrew. Uh, for those of you that speak Hebrew, that uh, Hebrew lecture is not uh, uh, live. It'll be publicized uh, to, you know, probably in about 12 or 13 hours from now uh, on YouTube. We have a Hebrew channel. Uh, so with that being said, we have Parashat Bamidba. We're starting a new book uh, out of the five books of Moses. And uh, this is uh, certainly a uh, different type of book than we had the last book. The book of Leviticus is full of interesting laws, although the book of Leviticus, you know, ended with a couple of extraordinary stories and uh, uh, some uh, very, very dear warnings for those that uh, still have not uh, made up their mind of whether they want to live a holy life or not. God uh, simply stamps it into reality that anyone who doesn't will simply have to pay the bill uh, at some point or another, but the truth be told, the uh, the sages say, why isn't Genom mentioned literally in the Torah itself? And one of the reasons the Rambam explains is that because the suffering that a person will endure during their life 
if they don't follow the Torah, is detailed in the Torah. One of the examples is in Parashat Bechukotai, where all of those punishments are actually punishments of this world. And anyone that has watched my lectures for the last 10 years knows that I've spoken about my personal story a few times, uh, discussing the different levels of suffering that Baruch Hashem, thank God, uh, we endured. And certainly suffering has a lot of blessing to it if you actually understand what it's, uh, what's behind it. And that's one of the things we actually learn uh, from Parashat Bamidbar. Uh, initially, when we look at Parashat Bamidbar, it, ta- it starts off with a commandment from God to do a census. Now, one of the things that the sages teach us is that we see that God asks Moshe or commands Moshe to do a census several times. This is not to say, uh, God forbid, that uh, you know he needed to know how many people are there because obviously he's almighty, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, he has uh, no limitations, but rather he wanted to show Am Yisrael that he loves them. And one of the ways that you express love for something is when you care about it, you care about the quantity, you care about the quality. You know, people that love money usually check their bank accounts and their uh, stock portfolios and bitcoins and any other asset that they have on a regular basis. Sometimes you'll see the same person checking their phone three or four times during that day just to see if anything changed in one of those accounts. Uh, Obviously, their love for money is the uh, primary reason behind it. People that uh, care about things count them. And uh, one of the things that Hashem wanted to show us multiple times throughout the Torah is that He loves us and He's counting us. But in addition to that, which we've discussed in uh, previous years, we see that there is a lot to learn from the names and the numbers. We see that on one end, the uh, first thing is that the census has specific conditions where this census includes everyone except the Levi tribe. The Levi tribe is excluded. They're not counted as part of the census. They're counted later on, but not as part of the census. They're excluded. They are direct servants of God, and they have a specific position. The second thing we see is that the leaders are identified by name multiple times. And a third thing we see is also that the numbers between the different tribes vary drastically where you have the conditions where they're only counting in the census everyone from the age of 20 to 60 because these this is the age the sages explain this is the age of somebody being in the army being able to go to war uh some like the ranban for example my uh, uh nachmanides say that it's not because these are the ones that were able to go to war but rather because once you got out of your teenage years you're now officially considered an adult so and you could serve god at a higher level and so on but needless to say we see that there are names we see there are specific numbers the tribe of yehuda is significantly bigger than the tribe of ephraim benjamin menashe and the others uh, Dan is very big as well, but again, nowhere near as big uh, as quantity as Yehuda. On the other hand, the one tribe that is excluded from the census has different conditions. Not only are they excluded from the census, but you also see that the conditions are different, where the census for the Levi tribe is from the age of 30 days old and up. So, in so many words, including everyone that's out of life risk. And the reason why we say life risk, there is a a halachic term 
for a, uh, a, a child that's born within the first 30 days, if the child, uh, in essence, doesn't survive the first 30 days, the burial requirements and so on are very different than if they are above 30 days old. So we see that, in essence, the census for the Levi tribe is, in so many words, everyone except the really, really newborn. The rest of the tribes, which is everyone else, everyone from the age of 20 to 60, which means that everyone under the age of 20, all the kids, as well as all the women, as well as all of the elders, are excluded from the census. So you would think, logically, that the number of levies that are counted here would be significantly higher than everyone else. And to your surprise and everyone else's, they're actually the least. In fact, the Ramban, Nachmanides, says that if this, the conditions of the Levi tribe's census were the same as the rest of the tribes, they wouldn't even amount to half of any of the tribes in total. Because some of the tribes are in the 30,000. But again, this is from age of 20 and up. So we see here that the number of levies was very, very few in comparison to everybody else. Why? Why are there so few levies? Furthermore, what can we learn from the names that are mentioned here, at least a few of them? Last but not least, how does all of this affect us in our days today where we sometimes feel ourselves that the conditions in our life are a desert, meaning they're empty of blessing, full of difficulties and dangers, just like the desert was full of scorpions, snakes, and all types of enemies like Amalek uh, that were trying to constantly attack Am Yisrael. Sometimes a person's life feels like that, where he goes to work, he works all day, she goes to work, she works all day, they come back with a check that's just enough to pay the bills and sometimes not even. Where's the blessing? He does whatever he has to to go on a shiduch date to find the perfect girl that's righteous, she's good, she's nice, she comes from a good family, she finds him, he finds her. Obviously, all the appropriate steps are taken and they don't uh, do anything immoral or anything that's uh, forbidden before marriage. They finally get married and no kids. Or a big separation between the kids as if they have to invent the kid each time. Where's the blessing? A person does whatever he can to build other people's companies. He succeeds drastically. And once he strikes out on his own, he figures that he's going to have at the very least the same success, if not more. And sometimes he's surprised that not only the success is not the same as it used to be, but rather failure seems almost like a definite. Why? Where is the blessing? Many times people ask about blessings in life. Most of the time, they ask about blessings that are relevant to money, to sustenance. But needless to say, there are blessings that are needed everywhere. One of the things we're going to learn from Parashat Bamidbar is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu strategically put us in the desert, in the Midbar, in order to eliminate all possible distractions where even the scorpions, the snakes, and anyone else that's outside of the camp 
was not able to attack us unless we let them in, or in so many words, let ourselves out. So when the Amalek wanted to attack us, they couldn't enter the camp. They had to attack whoever exited it. Anyone that left the camp and wanted to delve into the, uh, the, the scenery of the desert outside of the camp many times got hurt. Why don't you just stay in? It's safe. It's, it's holy. It's good here. Well, people always want to delve into things that are forbidden or perhaps beyond the, uh, you know, the, the knowledge that they already have. As Shlomo HaMelech says, Stolen water are sweeter. And people always want something that they can't have. Just like they, if somebody would take one cup of water, uh, one bottle of water and pour two different cups, one is his, one of his, his friends, somehow if he takes his friend's drink also, the second one tastes better. Why? Stolen water are sweeter. It's forbidden and therefore it has that extra taste that is imaginary, but needless to say makes the f- person have a certain type of dopamine pleasure that uh, makes them feel good about what they did before they go into the, into the uh, uh, regret. Now, the first thing we see is that the names of the, of the uh, leaders of the tribes, some are completely foreign to us unless you learn Gemara. For example, if you go to the beginning, the, uh, the tribe of, um, of Shimon has Shlumiel ben Tzurishadai. And then right after him is Yehuda, uh, in, in Shevet Yehuda, the tribe of Yehuda has Nachshon ben Aminadav. Most people know the, the name Nachshon ben Aminadav. He's the one that was the Baal Emunah, the one that had the most Emunah when Am Yisrael arrived at the Sea of Reeds. The ocean is in front of them. The snakes and scorpions are on the right and left side. The sages say that the scorpions and the snakes were gigantic. And if that's not bad enough, right behind them are the Egyptians' entire army chasing to kill them. No one knows how to swim. They haven't had any swimming lessons in Egypt while being slaves for a couple of hundred years. So everyone is afraid. Everyone is crying. Moshe Rabbeinu cries to Hashem. And Hashem says, what are you crying to me? What do you scream to me? Move on. Meaning do something in order to earn merit. Show me you believe. The minute that... Nachshon ben Aminadav understands this to be the mission. He goes into the waters and walks into them until they literally block his ability to breathe. They block his mouth, they block his nose, and he starts to drown. And at that moment, Hashem opens up the ocean. Into 12 separate tunnels, one for each tribe. And as the Rambam explains, it wasn't a tunnel like you would have in the movies where they went from one end to the other end, but rather it was the shape of a half a circle where they went one end and they came back to the same exact beach that they left at. This is actually one of the ways that uh, it was uh, possible to fool the Egyptians to continue following them because the Egyptians constantly saw the back of the camp disappear around the corner. Needless to say, the Nachshon ben Aminadav's step of trusting Hashem to such a high magnitude not only warranted him becoming the leader of the tribe of Yehuda and the great, 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 great grandfather of David Melech, 
from him comes the Mashiach, still there are many people out there that could perhaps make a big move to show their faith in Hashem, but sometimes that move is disappointing, where they go out and they start teaching Torah, but nobody shows up, or perhaps only a couple of people show up and one of them is related to them and the other one works for them. A person goes out there and donates a bunch of money because he figures, you know, it's good to donate for the sake of Torah, to publicize Torah, and God will bless me back. And only to find out that shortly after he made the donation, he lost some money or he lost his job. Many times a person does things and he feels like he wants to. She feels like she wants to be this Nachshon ben Aminadav. She wants to jump into the water. He wants to jump into the water to show God that they believe in him. But they get disappointed at first when they see what outcome. And most people give up a little too soon. It's well known there is all of these different cartoons or, or digital images where people show these uh, pictures or where there's two people uh, digging under the ground. One of them is a uh, digging on the right. The other one is digging on the left. Both are searching for diamonds and gold. Both have a wall in front of them, under them, around them. One guy gives up and walks away. The other guy says, ah, okay, since he's not here anymore, I'll go to his side because I haven't had any success in mine. And the first crack to the, uh, to the wall, boom, a whole slew of money and, and gold and diamonds and everything that the other guy, if he would have waited one more minute, would have received himself. Everyone knows this. But yet in real life, not in digital images, very few people apply it. This is called bitachon. Emuna is an understanding and clarification that God runs the world. He doesn't need you, you need Him. But more importantly, you understand that He oversees all of creation, including you. Bitachon is the confidence that not only does He oversee everything, but He specifically cares and is involved in your particular circumstance, your life, your thoughts, your difficulties, the words that come out of your mouth and the words that are in your mind. Everything that happened to you, everything that's happening to you, and everything that will happen to you. And that everything that he does is for your benefit. Meaning that while he has the whole world to manage, to oversee, to literally keep alive, Everything that he puts in front of you is always going to be the best possible circumstance out of all of the circumstances that are available to you. Which means that if you truly have bitachon, the suffering that's in your life, you will view favorably. Hence the reason why the Gemara in Masechet Brachot says that a person needs to bless God for things that he believes are good and for things that he believes are bad, like suffering, whether it be health, monetary loss, and so on. Why? Because you know that if God gave it to you, that was the best possible option. How could it be the best possible option for me to bleed through different orifices of my body? 
How could it be the best possible option for me to give a job to a lawyer to help me protect my property while I was going through financial difficulties only to find out that the lawyer is the biggest moron in the world and ended up costing me a $5 million apartment that's gone, that was literally taken over for peanuts because the lawyer doesn't know what he's doing. How could that be good? How could it be good that a person does so much good ends up having so much bad this is what bitachon is bitachon is a 100 percent or at least aspiration to have 100 percent we could only be fortunate enough to even if you have 50 percent but needless to say to have full confidence that whatever he gave you is the best possible thing available to you out of all the options now how could it be because if a person understands that God runs the world and therefore he has a way to run the world, he has rules. It's, these rules are the Torah. The Torah literally means instructions. Instructions for life, instructions to serve God, instructions to, in essence, violate the, the laws of God. If a person lives in the world, whether he likes it or not, he's part of this system. There's no such thing as a person is outside of the system. They're always in the system. They're either following the system, they're following the laws, or they're ignoring the laws and violating them. But needless to say, those decisions lead to outcomes. The cause and effect. You do something, there are outcomes. There are outcomes that are small outcomes in your life and bigger outcomes beyond your life in this world. And God is going to do everything that he possibly can to redirect your life to a place where you are more likely to go back to the right direction rather than the wrong direction. To direct you in a path to go to a better direction even though the direction that you're on may very well be good. To direct you in a fashion where this direction will elevate you rather than keep you exactly where you are. So a person does X, Y, Z, and now out of all of the options that are available in God's great world, those options narrow down because now you did something, you press certain buttons. Imagine you are on some type of shopping list on Amazon or some supermarket online. Now, Initially, when you enter the site, it's massive, it's, it's, it's intimidating how much stuff is out there. But once you say, I want something specific, let's just call it, you want a phone. So you type the word phone and all types of phones will come up. There's going to be cordless phones for the house, if people still have that. There's going to be phones that are toys for your kids. There's going to be phones that are from different companies that are, you know, old, new, big, small, all types of phones. Phones that you can use only in your own country, phones you can use all over the world. Now, if you press another button and say, no, no, I don't want just all the types of phones that exist in the world, pictures of phones, uh, drawings of, of, of phones, uh, toys of phones, Lego of phones. I don't want that. I want a real phone. So what are you going to write? You're going to say, okay, I want a real phone or you're gonna maybe even give more details and say i want a certain manufacturer let's just call it apple because that's where most people go so you want a apple or a samsung or whatever other company still exists 
And that narrows down the options further. But it's still not narrowing it down to one option because there's even more details because that you can put by saying that I want a specific model number. I want the model number from this year or from last year or the model number that's really big uh, because my hands are like dinosaurs and I want to hold an iPad to my head and call it a phone or I want to have uh, something small that perhaps I could still hold with my hand without really being afraid that it's going to fall out of my hand because it's too heavy. Whatever it is that you choose, needless to say, whatever you narrow down the options to, you're going to have less and less options. The same concept is how God runs the world measure for measure. You do certain things, the wide variety of options narrows down. You do others, you take other steps, the variety of options narrow down even further. You say certain things, which is another form of action, that you either are taking it with love and whatever is happening, you believe that God is helping you, that narrows down the option further to other options. And the point being is, that just like you can go from New York to Florida in a endless amount of ways, you can walk, you can fly in a, in a, in a private jet, in a jumbo jet, you can go on a ship, you can uh, uh, run over there, you can go on a motorcycle, a bicycle, a lot of different ways to go from point A to point B, God wants to bring you from point A to point B. But your actions are going to determine how you're able to go there, which options are available to you. Nachshon ben Aminadav didn't have many options. On the right and left was a certain death, and so was going back. The only option was forward, which also seemed like death, but it was not certain. And he went forward. And that's where the blessing came. On the other hand, the tribe of Shimon was led by Shlumiel ben Tzurishadai. Shlumiel ben Tzurishadai, the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, says is also known as Zimri. Zimri, which we're going to meet later on in Parashat Balak, is the one that went with the woman from the uh, uh, non-Jewish world, from uh, the... Um, uh, uh, from the Midianites, and uh, when Moab and Midian went and sent their women to the uh, camp of Israel, Zimri took the princess. Zimri took the princess and made a public Chilul Hashem, public desecration of God's name with her. Why? You are chosen by God to be the leader, meaning these people didn't win an election, they weren't, there wasn't a popularity contest. They were all righteous people. As it says in the verse, Vayikach Moshe, Ve'aron et ha'anashim ha'ele asher nikvu b'shemot. Moshe and Aaron took these men who had been specified by name. This is chapter 1, verse 17. Onkelos explains, specified by name, meaning specified by Hashem, by their name to join the counting of the people, meaning that Hashem chose these leaders. Hashem chose Shlumiel ben Tzurishadai. And in fact, the Gemara says Shlumiel ben Tzurishadai was one of the elders that was 400 years old and is one of the very few people alive on earth at this time that saw 
the face of Yaakov because Yaakov was his grandfather. He was not just a descendant of Shimon. He was Shimon's son. So he was Yaakov Avinu's grandson. He was hundreds of years old. So how do you go from being this extraordinary righteous person that was given a lot of extra years, much more than Moshe Rabbeinu got, how do you go from there to being a disgusting excuse of a human being that made a public sin just to get your point across and show Moshe Rabbeinu that you don't need to listen to him. This too, Rabotai, has to do with Emunah and Bitachon. You see, when Moshe Rabbeinu implemented the law during Parashat Balak, the Jews that went with the foreign women didn't just go with the foreign women, as the Gemara explains to us, they also served idols. And as soon as Moshe Rabbeinu found out about this, he applied the law. A person that serves an idol, death penalty. When the people in the tribe of Shimon started seeing their friends getting killed, they went to their leader, to Zimri. They said, how is it that you're allowing Moshe to kill us without even speaking up for us, something. And he acted, whoa, Moshe Rabbeinu is killing you guys without even consulting with me? I'll show him. Meaning that this was all a matter of honor. How could Moshe Rabbeinu kill you was not really a question because obviously there's a law. The law was not a new law. This law has been around since the beginning of time. Yaakov Avinu, his grandfather, his father Shimon, were very well aware that idolatry is forbidden and death penalty for the idol worshippers. So this was not a new thing. It wasn't like some wonder, like how are you killing my people because they're serving idols or they're going and being with the, with the foreign nations. and the wind. No, this wasn't a wonderment. What was the wonderment? How did he not tell me about it first? How did he not give me respect? You know how like sometimes people, they're mad at you without even knowing you? And they say, you better treat me with respect. You haven't even said a single thing to them. But they expect respect. Unfortunately, what they don't understand is that respect is not something you have to ask for. Respect is something you earn through your behavior. Usually those same very, very same people don't behave well. Don't behave respectful. But, needless to say, back to our topic at hand, this Zimri, also known as Shlumiel ben Tzuri Shaddai, is a person that demanded respect because he wanted to keep his honor in front of his own people. And in order to get, gain respect, he disrespected the leader. Now, if he had the right level of emuna and bitachon that we would assume he had before this day, before he got angry, before he lost his mind, before he became a completely wicked person remembered for his wickedness and nothing righteous that he did, if he would have had that same level of confidence, that same level of connection to God, then he would know that even if somebody disrespected you, you don't have to worry about taking revenge. 
as it says, El nekamot Hashem, El nekamot Ophia. God is the God of vengeance. The God of vengeance has arrived. This is the Tehilim, the psalm that we read every Wednesday in our morning prayer. You don't have to worry about taking revenge against anybody that you wrong. Let God do it. When you do it, God doesn't do it. When you want to take revenge against someone, but you don't, you're in essence showing God you believe He runs the world and He will protect you. He will help you. Even if you do nothing. In fact, the less you do, the more confidence in God you show. And the more He'll protect you. As it says in Exodus, Hashem yilachem lachem v'atem tacharishun. God will fight your wars and you shall remain silent. So, this Zimri didn't have this confidence on that day. And he lost everything because of it. He got killed by Pinchas in the most gruesome, horrific, memorable way in history. And that's what he's remembered for until this day. His peer on this list, Nachshon ben Aminadav, is remembered for good for eternity. Now later on we see that the number of Leviim in this list, as we said before, is few. Very few. The Ramban says that the reason behind the fewer number of Leviim is because Hashem didn't just decide to make all of the other tribes numerous just because. But rather this itself was one of his examples of how he runs the world. And even more so, him showing how he takes vengeance against his enemies. Because typically when we think of vengeance, we think of war, blood, uh, death. No. Paro, who forgot Yosef, the Egyptians who forgot Yosef, forgot the blessing that the Jewish people brought to them, turned us into slaves. Because they were afraid that we would grow too much if we were let to live freely. God said, these idol worshippers not only are worshipping different gods that they created out of their small minds, but they turned my people into their servants because they think they could somehow control their population growth by turning them into slaves. And God says, As they torture him, he will still grow greater in number and grow more massive and spread even further. Meaning that the way that God took vengeance against the Egyptians at first, before the plagues, before destroying the whole country forever, before all of that, is by making the Jewish people numerous. Where the blessing came that every mother that gave birth without any extra effort, without any shots, without any painful uh, uh, you know, types of uh, surgeries or, or, or types of treatment that unfortunately many women have to do just to have kids, 
Today, no treatment, nothing changed. Every birth, six babies. This may explain why the number of the census are always even. Somebody asked me this week a fantastic question. How is it that all of the numbers for the tribes are even? Now, one of the answers could very well be that because every mother had six babies at each time. So if she had three, four, five births, you're talking about 18 to 30 kids per family, plus the parents, it's always an even number, 32. So this could be very well the answer. There is another answer that the sages say, which is that God likes to round up to a complete number, and a complete number is the synonym for an even number. Needless to say, we see here an enormous blessing where each mother is giving birth to six kids without having to spend months in the hospital recuperating, without worrying about anything other than simply moving on with her life and taking care of whatever she needs to take care of. But yet, Moshe doesn't have five twin brothers or sisters. Neither does his brother Aaron. Neither does Miriam. These were three. Uneven and also no six. The Ramban explains the reason why there's no six Moshe's or six Aaron's or six Miriam's, all obviously related to each other, brother siblings, is because the Levi tribe didn't get the blessing of six babies per, per birth because the Levi's were studying Torah, were serving God, and therefore were excluded from the slavery. This was instituted hundreds of years before them when Yosef was the viceroy and he made a law in the land of Egypt to make sure that all people of religion don't have to pay taxes, can go in and out of the land freely and do not have to, in so many words, they serve God. Whether it's the Egyptians for serving the idol or it's the Jewish people. They have free reign to do whatever they want. That's why Moshe and Aaron were able to walk in and out of Egypt freely, in and out of the palace of Parah, without being worried that anyone's going to kill them. Now you can say, yeah, but uh, that's because uh, Moshe used to be, you know, the, uh, he was raised at the uh, palace of, uh, of the Egyptians, of Parah. That's why they didn't touch him. Yeah, but how do you explain Aaron? The reason why is because of this particular law that we learn at the end of, of the book of Genesis. Point being is that the Levi tribe did not get this blessing. And therefore, there was no sixth birth, which means the number of Levi's was much fewer than everyone else. What's the reason? The sages explained to us that the reason why each one of the tribes got six babies and not five or eight or 15 was because they were enslaved six days per week. For each day of torture, they got a free baby. The Levi tribe, not being slaves, didn't get the same blessing. And therefore, because of their 
lack of suffering, they also got lack of blessing. From there we learn one of the most valuable lessons that a person can actually learn in their life about their relationship with God. If God gives you suffering, that's because He's trying to help you. He's not trying to torture you. There are places for torture. There are places for punishment. This world is not designated for that. Beyond this life, Geinom, Kafakela, Kever, all of these horrible places that we've discussed and even made films about are very much real and are very much part of the foundation of Judaism. But that is if you simply destroyed your life, destroyed your relationship with God and ended off that way. If you're in this world still, Whatever rebuke you're getting from God, says Shlomo HaMelech, that's because he loves you. That's because he's trying to elevate you. That's because he's trying to bring you somewhere that you cannot get to any other place, any other way. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya was blessed by Rabban Yochanan. Praiseworthy is his mother that gave birth to him because... When Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania was a child, his mother, still when he was still an infant, she would take him to the Bet Midrash to listen to the sages learn Torah. Now you could say, yeah, but what does he understand? He's a baby, he's an infant. What is he understanding? Still, it's good. Let him listen to good things. Let him listen to holy things. The tribe of Levi listen to holy things, listen to good things. They elevated themselves, and therefore they were chosen to be a specific, unique tribe that was closest to God in their servitude. But yet, we see that when it comes to the position of each one of the tribes, there are others that are also put close to God. Who are they? The first one is Yehuda. Yehuda being the leader. The leader in Torah, the leader in protection, the leader of the people. From him comes the Mashiach. After him is Issachar. And then Zvulun. The common denominator among these three tribes is not that they're just leaders or they were a part of the census, but rather these are the ones that are the most directly connected throughout the generations to the world of Torah. Where the holiness of Yehuda is well known to his descendants, whether it be Yehuda himself, who admitted his wrongdoing in public, despite the shame, he still admitted the truth. After him, we are called Jews, we're called Yehudim. Or it's his grandson, descendant, David Melech. That from him comes Mashiach. Issachar and Zvulun, though, were blessed because they made Torah their business. Where one would work and make enough money for both of them to live. Of course, both studied Torah, but the one that worked, needless to say, studied much less because he was working, he was doing business. The one that studied Torah all day, all night, studied on behalf of both of them. But the working one, the one that worked 
and gave the money for both of them to live is praised even greater, positioned even greater, because God says, if it wasn't for him and his efforts, the Torah scholar wouldn't be able to learn and be a Torah scholar like he is. So we see that his suffering ended up getting him even greater blessing. The suffering that Zimri got in being, or at least in his eyes, embarrassed, could have gotten him to be the leader, could have gotten him to be someone blessed, but instead he took it the wrong way. Many times people don't understand that the suffering that God gives you is simply another way to elevate you. When it comes to money, when it comes to things that hurt people's pockets, it's usually the number one place where people lose their minds. The Sefer Asicha Shvuit by our own dear Rabbi Ephraim Kachlon he has endless amount of stories about different parashot, different things that have happened throughout the years. One of the stories that's mentioned in this week's parasha, parashat by Midbar, is about the Admo Mizvil. The Admo Mizvil is one of the great sages that lived in the last few hundred years. Someone that was not just a great sage in knowledge, not just a great sage in righteousness, but a sage that literally knew what the blueprint of creation looks like if you simply looked at his life and how he lived it. Rav Biederman, Sheikhyeh, just published a story about the Admor Mizvil, of how when he was young and newly married at 14 years old, in those days people got married very young. I believe my grandparents on my mother's side also got married at uh, such an age, I think even younger, 13 years old. This was the norm in previous generations and generally throughout all of history. Only now people are getting married very late even though the Gemara says that a, uh, a man that uh, uh, does not expend effort to find a wife after he's 19 years old is cursed. Why? Because you are making yourself more prone to sin. Why are you not getting married? You're already 19. Oh, I'm not ready yet. I don't have enough money. I'm not ready yet. I don't have enough this. Wait, you think that God commanded you to do something and after you do it, he's simply going to kill you? Just because, like, that works and that's the type of God you believe in? Well, no, my friend got married soon and he's struggling financially. Wait, so you think that if he didn't get married, he wouldn't struggle? As if the Torah doesn't tell us that Many times that God is the one who decides to give you what he gives you. On Rosh Hashanah, it's already decided how much money you're going to get, whether you take the job with the uh, Torah organization or, or you take the job with the uh, anti-Semite. The amount of money that you're going to get is going to be exactly the same. If you think that if he didn't get married or if he didn't uh, sign that contract or if he did sign the contract or anything else would have changed the amount of money that God would have given them, simply you don't believe in God. You believe in you. You're a small little idol. You may say, you may say you believe in God, but in reality, you believe in you. The Admon Mizvil, already as a young man, wanted to make sure he doesn't believe in himself. He wanted to show that he believes in God. He was 14 years old. He got married. He was learning Torah. 
he was struggling, and his father, which was always an extraordinary Talmud Chacham, was helping him. And each day, his wife would go to his father, and he would give her a part of a ruble. She would go, she would buy food, and they would live off of this. Now, after some time, he thought to himself and he said, I don't want it to look like I believe that the salvation is only going to come through my father. If the salvation is going to come, let it come from, uh, from God. Don't go and get the money from my father this week. Of course, when you're living off of literally change that you get every single day, every day matters. So after the first day, there's no money, there's no food. The second day, there's no money, there's no food. The third day passed, there's no money, there's no food. On the fourth day, no money, no food. Now, of course, this is not just difficulty, this is a nightmare. And the Admo Mizvil, as young man as he is, understands that you're not allowed to torture other people just because you want to show your faith in God. You can torture yourself You can over, if you can overcome it, no problem. But you can't put your problems and your efforts on and force somebody else to do it. He knew he's responsible for his wife. And he said to his wife, maybe what I'm doing is not right because it's not just me alone anymore. Uh, perhaps, why should I tell God how to bring me the salvation? If he's bringing me the salvation through my father, then so be it. Go to my father now and, you know, get, get money so we can eat. She goes to his father and she collects a ruble, an entire ruble. Why? Because his father says, oh, I haven't seen you all week, so I'm going to give you a full ruble. On her way home, she notices that some, you know, a uh, caravan of, uh, with a few people in there, pass her, and she gets home right when these people are leaving. Right when they're leaving, that's when she gets home. And the Admo Mizvin, the young man, is shocked at what just transpired. She asks, what happened? He says, these people were at my father's house. And when they heard that I just got married recently, they wanted to come visit me. And apparently they, they wanted to come because they wanted to give me, you know, a, a gift. So while we were talking and they were giving me blessings and, and wishing me well, I saw that one of them took out a ruble out of his pocket. And apparently he was looking to give it to me. And we were talking and talking and talking. And at some point, I, I saw how his hand is going back, and he's still smiling and still happy with everything, but somehow, maybe he forgot, maybe he didn't realize it, but somehow that hand that had the ruble, the blessing, it went from his hand to his pocket. And he left without giving it to me. And his wife is holding a ruble that she got from the father. And he says, Then I learned... The blessing is going to come. Whether it's going to come from my father or it's going to come from somebody else, it's going to come. Whatever is yours is yours. No one can take it from you. No one can give it to you. In so many words, no one can help you or harm you unless God decreed so. How you receive the blessing 
is going to be an expression of your confidence, your bitachon in Hashem. If you exert a lot of effort, that simply means you don't have much bitachon in Hashem, you don't have much confidence in Hashem, you have confidence in yourself. Does that extra effort help you make more money? Absolutely not. You were going to get that money whether you did that crooked deal or not. You were going to get that money whether you were you stole the money or not, whether you worked two jobs or not, you were going to get the same amount of money in some way by the same creator. You chose to exert extra effort. Now, this does not mean that a person just sit home on a couch, watch TV all day. Obviously, a person has to be occupied all day. If part of your occupation is to have a job, no problem. The rest of your day, learn Torah. Do the things that you're supposed to do. You can't just sit at home, do absolutely nothing and expect the blessings to come. Only poverty will come. And sins. But the Admomi's view says, look at it. The ruble was already mine in Shemaim. Had I waited an extra few hours, it would have arrived right to the house. Because I didn't wait, we got it. But in the same way that we're used to. This very same Admor Mizvil is mentioned in Rabbi Ephraim Sefer, Parashat Bamidbar. As he grew in age, he grew in wisdom, in Emunah and Hashem. And he understood how to read things in creation. One day, his daughter was very sick. So sick that they came to the Bet Midrash and they told him, Kvod Arav, your daughter is on her deathbed. There's no cure. No one can help her. We figured your Rav would want to know, maybe say a, uh, some type of prayer, maybe say goodbye. Instead, of going to his daughter, that Momisville went to one of his apartment houses, where he was already wealthy enough that he had houses that he was renting to people. His servant went with him, and he saw this and witnessed this, one of his Talmidim, and that Momisville knocks on a door, and as soon as the lady opens up, she says, what do you want? With a nasty attitude. And that Momi's visit says, actually, what uh, I want the money. You haven't paid in uh, f- you know, a few years, and I'm, it's time for you to pay, please. And she starts yelling at him and cursing him out and saying, how dare you? What do you think you are? You call yourself religious. You come to me, ask me for money. What are you this? What are you that? Oh, no. And he sits there, sits there and takes the abuse takes the yelling, takes the insults, everything. She goes for a half hour straight, ripping him apart in front of people. Without him responding, without her even repeating the same curse twice. Large vocabulary this lady had. After she finishes, he turns around and he leaves. Talmud asks him, where do we go now, Rabbi? He says, go back to the Bet Midrash. She says, what, what about your daughter? No, my daughter is fine now. My daughter is fine. The Talmud wanted to see this. The father of a girl that's about to die, instead of going to visit the girl, where did he go? To collect rent. Instead of collecting the rent, he got insulted in front of people. 
for a half hour straight. And instead of going to the girl, at least now if she's still alive, he goes back to the bit he goes to learn Torah. How does this work? He goes back to the house. As he goes to the house, he starts hearing people celebrating. Wow, amazing. I can't believe it. Baruch Hashem. People are screaming to Hashem with, with thank yous. He walks into the house and he sees this girl is not only alive, she's walking, she's healthy. Miracle. Now, if that was enough, it would be it. And it would be fine. But this happened again. Years later, a few, three, four, five years later, the same thing happened again. This young girl got sick again. It came back. They came to the Rav Mizvil, to the Rebbe Mizvil, Admor, and they told him, Kvod Rav, your daughter is sick. She's on her deathbed. He already knew the protocol. He got up, closed the books, and he went to the apartment building, to the same exact apartment of that nasty woman. The same exact student is with him this time. He's walking with them. They get there. He knocks on the door. The woman opens the door. But this time, she smiles, and then she starts covering her face, saying that she's embarrassed. Oh, I'm sorry, Kvodarav. I'm so sorry. You know, I have, I have the money for you. I've been collecting. I've been putting on the side. I'm so sorry. I haven't paid you in so many years. I've been saving. Hey, I have, I have some of this. Hold on one second. I'm going to get it. And also, I'm really sorry for, for, for being so nasty to the rabbi a few years ago when you came to visit me. I'm so sorry. Here, here, Kvodarav. And she hands him like a jar full of money that she's been collecting. Did Momizvil turns around and starts crying and walks back. His Talmud asks him, Kvodarav, what now? He says, now I have to go bury my daughter. They went to the house and they confirmed that the girl died. Here we see literally a man of flesh and blood, at least, it would seem so. Having direct instructions to follow of how to take advantage of the suffering and utilize it in such a way that it actually turns into the blessing you've always wanted. The Admomisvil knew that the suffering is going to endure from this nasty lady is going to replace the decree of death that's on his family. But the second time when he went and the woman did tshuva, which on one end is good, she did tshuva, great, but on the other end, that's not what he was hoping for on that day. On that day, he was hoping that it would be repeated. Insult and abuse and suffering and pain that's going to remove a decree from the world. The moment that he saw that this woman did tshuva, he realized the decree has been sealed and his daughter is gone. Here we see Rabotai Karim, how a Kadosh Baruch Hu brings suffering to a person's life not to hurt him as the main objective, but rather to elevate him. And if a person has the right amount of emuna and bitachon, certainly they could take advantage of these things and see that, yes, 
It's great to be the Levi. Every one of us could be the Levi, as the Rambam says in Ilchot um, uh, Shemitah. He talks about, the at the end over there, talks about how while all of these different uh, tithes have to be given to the tribe of Levi, really, nowadays, everyone can be part of the Levis. Not that they become part of the tribe of Levi, per se, but rather they can do the same thing as the Levi tribe by dedicating their life to a life of Torah. Now, if you cannot dedicate your life to a life of Torah, either because you simply can't sit there all day and study Torah from morning to night, or you simply are better at working and making money. Make that money that you have count by investing into Torah. Because once you have that Torah in your life, you're not only adding more blessings to the Levi tribe, to the Torah world, you're adding more blessings to your life. Part of those blessings is not just getting more money and bigger houses, but rather part of those blessings is getting a deeper, more profound connection with your creator where he will give you the insight to see all things in your life as him holding your hand. Even if those things are sometimes insults that are painful, losses that are simply hard to ignore. The more you invest your life into Torah, whether it be learning or it be money or both, the more you will have a deeper connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, with the Creator, just like the Levi tribe did, but also just like Issachar and Zvulun and Yehuda did. All of the tribes were close to Hashem, but those few are identified as the ones that were closest, the ones that made the biggest sacrifice, the ones that got the suffering, whether they got the suffering by slavery or they got the suffering by simply enduring all of the tests that come to a Torah scholar's life that are unique and of their own. Where you don't know where the money's going to come from because you don't have the regular job, which means you're forced to believe in God on day one, whether you like it or not, because you're not going to some factory and collecting a paycheck. You're not going to some synagogue and collecting donations. You're learning, and simply, when the money comes, it comes. When the blessing comes, it comes. The life of the Levi tribe was not an easy life. So they also got suffering. But they didn't get the same type of suffering as the others. That's why they got their form of blessings, and the rest of the tribes got their form of blessings. The ones that invest into the Torah world as scholars, as dedicating their life to learning, get a certain type of blessing. The ones that invest into the Torah world by money also get a blessing. Either way, you can get a blessing. The question is, do you know what to do with it? And the bigger question is, do you have enough bitachon and Hashem to survive with that same faith until that blessing knocks on your door. With that being said, I'm going to have a quick drink and then you guys can start shooting some questions at me. All right, let's see. We have TikTok. You guys have some questions, I see. 
Etsy. How are you? To all the people that are saying hi to me, hi back to everybody. Can you teach me about my bar mitzvah parashat balak? Well, we just said something about it tonight. You could also go to my YouTube page and uh, go press over there on the search balak. You'll see that I have several lectures about that uh, that parasha. Probably at least four, five, six hours, if not more than a dozen hours about uh, discussing it. And you could learn quite a bit about that parasha from different midrashim, gemarot, zohar, and many places that uh, we've uh, discussed over the years. And Bezat Hashem, when we get to the day that uh, it's Parashat Balak, we'll also discuss it again. Who was the rabbi that is named, that mentioned that his daughter died? It's the rabbi, the um, Admor Mizvil. Admor Mizvil. Zvil, I think in English, is Z-V-I-L. It's, an, it's a location, but it's, uh, that's how the... Admorim, the leaders of Hasidut, were named after their location or their book. Okay. I need a moderator to rid me of all of the uh, idol worshippers. Yeah. Anybody wants to volunteer to be a moderator, by all means. Get rid of them, but I don't think that there's going to be success simply because there's so many idol worshippers out there that uh, it's like I said it earlier that if a person were to count uh, the number of idol worshippers that are out there in the world, there wouldn't be enough life to count them. Somebody did a uh, estimate that if uh, you were to count, let's say, the biggest population. In the world at the time, I think still to this day, is the biggest population in the world is uh, China. And they said that if China had each one of their people line up one in front of the other, one in front of the other, and you would count them one, two, three, four, five, all the way until you got to the I don't know, billion and a half, two billion people that they have. And uh, how long would that take? They said that it would take almost a hundred years to count them. And one of the reasons is because by the time you got to certain people, already they would give birth to other people and more people and more people and more people. And the population would actually grow over time. But needless to say, it's a, uh, there's a lot of idol worshippers out there. This is the reason why the prophet in the Tanakh, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14, he describes the war of Gog and Magog, the last war that will be in this world. Uh, and uh, that war is going to initially wipe out two-thirds of the world. Two-thirds of the world. And then the last third will be uh, tested like uh, God uses the words like, fine, uh, like gold and uh, silver. Meaning that even the last third that survives the, uh, the initial impact of the war, not all of the last third will end up being, uh, 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 will not merit to see the, the blessings that come after. So... When you first read it, uh, without being familiar with the world, without being familiar with the laws of the Torah, it sounds, uh, you know, vicious to just wipe out two-thirds of the world, just like that. But when you start learning Torah and you compare the behavior of society in comparison to the Torah, you see that the vast majority of people easily are, uh, are people that are going to be part of those two-thirds. 
uh, because they're either uh, idol worshippers and uh, 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 some type of man god, you know, where they uh, they've humanized God and turned him into a man, or they're idol worshippers and statues and all types of other uh, nonsensical beliefs, uh, which are all against the Torah. So for for God to give you life, to give you uh, the ability to to see, to hear, to speak, to taste to uh, conduct yourself, to procreate, to turn a seed into a human being, uh, to uh, literally uh, give you enough wisdom to, uh, to create certain things, and yet you live a whole life without following him, without delving into what the truth really is, that's not just a failure. Uh, that's uh, no different than committing treason. You know, people that commit treason and give the secrets of one country that they are citizens of uh, to their enemy country usually get the worst punishments. Usually get the worst punishments. And one of the reasons is because it's the biggest form of betrayal. Because the country that you're giving away their secrets, you're giving it, uh, not only you're giving away to, to, uh, uh, to the enemy, but usually you're giving it while they're still paying you. While that country that you're, you're going to hurt and give away its secrets they're still paying you. They're still feeding you. They're still supporting you. They're actually helping you go against themselves. So there's no bigger, uh, 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 you know, uh, betrayal than doing something like that. So the same concept is with idol worshippers. Idol worshippers are, you know, in essence, committing treason, treason against God, where He's giving you life. He's giving you uh, everything that you have in life. But you are worshiping an idol. Now you're going to say, yeah, but uh, that's uh, what my, uh, my parents taught me. Or that's what my teachers taught me. Yes, but they taught you some things and you followed. And they taught you other things and you didn't follow. Meaning that you can't just blame your parents and say, oh, this is the way I taught. This is the way I'm going to be. Because there's plenty of things your parents taught you. And you didn't follow it because you used your own mind to go double check. And sometimes you didn't agree with what your parents said. And there are also plenty of things that you learned that your parents never taught you because you have your own mind, you have your own life, you have your own time. So you can't really blame your parents for your misdeeds and your uh, false beliefs. Every person is given opportunities by Hashem, by God, to identify the truth. And one of the amazing things that, uh, that God did uh, is give people the truth in, in such an accessible way where the Torah, the five books of Moses, is the number one selling book in all of history. It is literally translated to every language, uh, and there is no possibility for a person not to get it, especially now that you have video, audio, text. Uh, you can get Torah in so many different ways, and anyone that spends at least as much on, on Torah uh, in, in, in one year as they do on their job, you know, throughout their life, pretty much, they, they, they spend so much time in the job. But if they compare, let's say they work eight hours a day, they'll study Torah eight hours a day, just for one year. There's no doubt that that person will know the truth. There's no doubt that that person will know the truth without even spending that much money, because that much time. Because the person that really studies the truth has to go to the beginning. And they'll constantly come across different statements in the Torah that simply tell you there is no other God. God is not a man that he changes his mind. 
God is a uh, 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 is not something that you can humanize. He has no body, no image, no no likeness to a body. This already eliminates any type of belief system that depends on a person coming to the world and saving you and dying himself. Can't save himself, but he saved you somehow. All of Christianity goes into the garbage by the time you uh, you learned the five books of Moses. You don't even need to go to the prophets and the writings. Five books of Moses already confirmed that the New Testament can never be a word of God. And the same five books of Moses also confirmed that Islam, the other leading religion in the world, also cannot be from God. Why? Because the very same five books of Moses confirms that the Torah will never change. It will never change, which means that anything else whether it be the Quran or New Testament or be Buddha or be whatever, be uh, Transformers and Pikachu. It doesn't make a difference what people believe in. Nothing that comes after it is a word of God. Nothing. So when a person looks at these statements at face value, it's impossible for them not to have questions about their belief system. And in fact, anyone that spends enough time learning Torah always arrives at the same exact truth. Sometimes people see the truth, but they still go after the lie. Because the lie is easier. Because the lie does not obligate you to pray three times a day, to fast, to give tzedakah, to be decent, to be moral, to observe Shabbat, to put on tefillin, to, uh, to be uh, 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 kind to uh, your, uh, your wife to the point where you have to honor her more than you honor yourself to dedicate your life to learning uh, uh, Torah for a part of it, and to, in essence, following these all of these laws, these 613 biblical laws and seven rabbinical laws, most of which are not applicable to uh, to us today because it's we're not at the time of the temple, but certainly a good portion of it is applicable to everybody. And when a person sees that's one side, while the other side, the side of idolatry and heresy, tells you you could simply do whatever you want and just as long as you believe in some dude that died on a cross or you believe in some guy that uh, found himself or says he's found God in the desert then you're you're going to be saved this is obviously nonsensical and there are many many ways that you can prove that Christianity and Islam and anything else outside the Torah is false that's why the punishment is so severe for anyone that does not follow the Torah uh, for what it actually says now you can say, yeah, but what about this uh, chapter in Isaiah and this chapter in Daniel and all the stuff that they taught you at the church? All of that stuff is nonsense. Not that the verses and the prophets are nonsense, but all of the, what they taught you is nonsense. And the reason why is very simple. We Jewish people do not just read one verse from the Torah and conclude the whole story. We read the whole story. We read everything before it, everything after it, everything around it. We look at the whole thing. So anyone that says, oh, what about Isaiah 53? Why don't you tell me? Look at Isaiah 52. Look at Isaiah 51, 50, 49, 46, 40. Look at all of them. They all say the suffering servant is Israel, the people of Israel, not a person. But if you simply delete the entire book of Isaiah and just make it one verse, you can make whatever you want out of it. You can make Pikachu your Mashiach if you want. You can make a transformer. You can actually make this mouse right here. This mouse for my computer could be your, uh, your Messiah if you want. You could do whatever you want. But if you look at the entire text, 
There's no other truth that you could arrive to. The same with Daniel 9, the same with anything else. Now, of course, this new uh, heretical belief in the world that's coming from the uh, what they call the uh, Hebrew Israelites. These are a group of thugs that call themselves Jews now, even though they know nothing about Judaism and they follow Christianity. They keep mentioning the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, but not the whole book of Deuteronomy. Just one chapter the chap and not even the whole chapter just a few verses with the chapter to talk about being enslaved and they figure oh see look look slavery being shipped oh look at that that's us that's what happened to the black people in america a few hundred years ago that's us we're the jews you stole our identity no you're idiots that's what you are because we do not conclude anything in life, not just Torah, based on one single sentence. We read the whole thing, the whole story. Look at Mount Sinai. Who did God make the Jewish people? Look at who are the leaders. Look at uh, uh, throughout actual history. Look at what it says beforehand. Look at what it says afterhand. It doesn't just say slavery. It also says a lot of other things. And all of these things happened to the Jewish people well before the, the, the enslavement happened in America. Thousands of years ago, it already happened. Now, you don't want to believe it because, obviously, it'll completely take your entire belief system and put it into the garbage pit where it belongs. But that's the problem. You have a teaching system that is no different than the same Christianity that all of you came from. If you want to see the truth, you have to abandon the falsehood and go towards logical reading, understanding, and application of Torah text. Now, if a person looks at the Torah, there is no way that they can conclude the wrong way unless they have some type of bias because the Torah is very simple for a person to understand this is who it's for, this is what it's for, and of course, all of the different uh, 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 teachings are not at face value. We're not reading a storybook. We have to read and understand what it says from the commentary of the sages because the sages are the very same ones that were learning throughout their entire life what, from their fathers and their rabbis all the way from the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, meaning the very same people that were out Mount Sinai, taught their children and their children and their children all the way through today, which means that what we have today is not a third, fourth, fifth version of somebody's story, but rather it's a first-person account. It's a first-person account. What we're reading today is what was there at Mount Sinai and what was there throughout all of the generations. The Torah never changed. And that's the problem with people when they simply don't want to arrive at the truth. They want to arrive at whatever they want to believe whatever they want to believe. And that is a very serious problem, and not just for the Gentiles, also for Jews. Many times there are Jews that simply don't want to believe that there is a punishment. They don't want to believe that they're obligated to observe Shabbat or the other mitzvot. They don't want to believe it, so they're simply going to make up things. But anyone that looks at the text will find the truth very quickly. It's not hard. It just simply requires effort, and it requires you to remove your own personal agenda and interest and bias that you have you have to simply look for the truth for what it really is if a person does that there's no way in the world that they will not arrive at the truth because that's what god promises us in the book of deuteronomy chapter 4 he says if you look for me you will find me but only if you look for me with all of your heart and all of your soul meaning that if you actually are going to exert 
the right amount of effort to look to to find the truth you will 100% find it there is no doubt that you will find it if you arrive at something that contradicts all of history all the texts of the sages throughout all of the generations and you are like a one man show guess what you are wrong 100% of the time because there is nothing new under the sun there is nothing that you're going to discover in the torah that wasn't found and discussed endless amount of times before you so if the black hebrew israelites were not mentioned in the text a thousand years ago 1500 years ago at the time of david melech no one mentioned them that means that they simply are an invention if the uh, uh, uh a man turning into a god by some uh, woman that claims to be a virgin even though she's married and all types of other nonsensical irrational things is not mentioned in the torah and in fact the opposite of mentioned in the torah that's it it doesn't exist that's also the reason why when people tell me oh listen you know there's this new thing in the world you have ai and, and you know they, they came out with a study uh, that uh, within the next 20 years or 50 years ai is going to take over the world and I tell them, yeah, that's people that watched a lot of movies and are simply have so much junk in their head that they believe what the movies say, that uh, the robots are going to run the world. So he says, well, how do you know it's not going to happen? Very simple. If it's not written in the Torah, it doesn't exist. If it's not written in the Torah, it does not exist. That is an understanding that all Jews have if they are following the Torah. And all righteous people that follow the Torah have. If it's not written in the Torah, it does not exist. So if you find a place in the Torah that says that robots are going to run the world, okay, no problem. We'll make a whole lecture about it. But you won't. If you find a lecture that says, oh, aliens from different uh, planets are going to come just like the movies and they're going to shoot beams into the ground and people are going to explode and the alien is going to take all of the natural resources of the land and they're going to take people. If you find that in the books, no problem. Show it to me. We'll make an entire series about it. But you're not going to find it. Why? Because it doesn't exist. Aliens will never come to this planet and take over the world. So everything that happened and everything that's happening and everything that will ever happen is inside the Torah. Both the written and the oral. You have literally millions of books. Not a single one of them mentions the craziness of people that believe in i don't know whether it be flat earth or be the aliens or or the new world order taking over the world these group of old people that somehow press buttons and the whole world is, uh, serves them and uh, all this nonsense or the, it doesn't exist why it's not in the torah it's not in the torah now are there things in the torah that uh, that uh, could happen sure there's war there's earthquakes there's a lot of different things that are in the torah a lot of different possibilities, a lot of different things. But the stuff that people usually are more prone to believe are things that don't exist in the Torah, but only in people's imagination. And therefore, those people, with their false beliefs, go further and further away from God. And in the end, they'll be punished for it. Why? Because they committed treason. Instead of reporting to the world about the truth of God and His Torah, they reported about the enemies of God and their lies. And we hope that everybody wakes up one day and realizes that it's before it's too late. Stop making up stuff. Everything you want is in the Torah. There's nothing else. 
that you need. What does the Talmud hint about social media and its harms to relationships? Well, it's important for a person to know that one of the things that the Talmud teaches us is not just about social media per se, but simply how to behave. One of the foundations that we actually learned from the five books of Moses is that in order to connect to God, it, re- it requires holiness. And holiness, Rashi and the Ramban both uh, uh, clarify it, holiness comes from the issues of morality, the way people are express themselves physically. The more modest a woman is, the more holy she will be. The more modest a man is, the more holy he will be. Now, just because someone is modest because of their clothes doesn't necessarily automatically mean they're modest everywhere else. But the point being is, by being modest in behavior, in clothing, in, 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 in just simply the way that they socialize, that automatically makes the person a vessel that is able to accept a certain amount of holiness in the world. Now, part of a woman's modesty, to her benefit, is going to determine what kind of husband she's going to get. The Gemara, the Talmud, and Masechet Sota, the first daf, which starts with daf two, number two, says that a woman that's modest will be a wife to a man that's righteous. Uh, A man that's wicked will get a woman that's not modest. Why? Because if she is is, uh, modest, that means that she's more likely to be righteous. Therefore, the match that God's going to make is a righteous woman with a righteous man. If she's not modest, then there's no possible way that she could be righteous, and therefore, the match for her that's perfect is a wicked man also. She's wicked, she goes to a wicked man. Furthermore, the sages teach us that just because a person is modest doesn't mean that they are uh, completely oblivious of the joy of life, including the uh, intimate aspects of life. We have a whole series about Jewish intimacy and how extraordinary it can be while maintaining holiness and, in fact, elevating holiness and modesty. Now, if a person ignores all of these things and simply just wants to live in the world the way the world is, then certainly that person is going to throw modesty into the garbage. She's going to post all types of pictures about herself and her life and even parts of her body on the internet, on social media. And that in itself is going to bring many curses to her life. Not just from the creator itself, but curses she's bringing upon herself. Because by putting pictures of yourself on social media, on your WhatsApp, on your TikTok, on your Facebook, and all of these different places, you yourself are minimizing your significance in the world because instead of being the daughter of the creator, you are now, have objectified yourself and to, to tell people that your significance depends on the way you look, on what you eat, on where you go, on what you wear. You've, in essence, taken this extraordinary presence that God gave you, being the daughter of the Creator, being the daughter of the King of Kings, that in itself does not require details. That's enough. You've taken that and all that comes with it, and you've minimized it into something meaningless and something that's only uh, for, for a temporary amount of time. The food that you are putting pictures of you eating, that food, people may not like it tomorrow. It may end up being uh, causing people disease. That dress that you are showing people off that uh, you just got, 
may very well be out of style by the time you post that picture or people look at it. And then instead of them celebrating it with you, they'll actually make fun of you that you're wearing it. The immodesty that a woman presents herself as, and whether she's wearing or not wearing certain clothes, that is also temporary as the body changes. And all she will have is, number one, the people that simply only want to be next to her because of our physical uh, uh, shape. And those very same people that will leave her because of that physical shape changes. And also, a life full of regrets that she could no longer be that person. Because age catches up with everybody. So, if a woman wants to simply live a life full of regrets, a life that only attracts meaningless uh, 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 endeavors, attracts worthless uh, relationships, attracts only people that want to take advantage of you, socialize on social media as much as you want. But if a woman wants to have meaningful life, a life that has a purpose, the last thing she would do is put even a single picture of anything related to her life. And in fact, any personal detail about her life on social media or anywhere. In fact, I would even say that a woman shouldn't even share pictures with family uh, uh, as, as often as people do, uh, unless they promise to never share it with anybody else. If you want to send your mother or your father uh, you know, a, a picture of you and the kids or, or you being, I don't know, wherever you are in the world... As long as they promise not to share with everybody else, I'd say, okay, that may be okay. Otherwise, I wouldn't share it. Why? Because there are so many sick people in the world now that the very same technology that has caused uh, all of the sins of the world to be magnified uh, as the um, um, the Gemara in Masechet Sota at the end, not the beginning now, at the end gives prophecies of what's going to happen at the end of times. One of them is going to be the chutzpah There's going to be a lot of uh, obnoxiousness and rudeness and, and lewd behavior is going to be standard. Uh, needless to say, this is something that doesn't need uh, qualification. We see it in life. Uh, you know, Everywhere we walk, we see people, how they behave, what they post online. So a woman that is sees that that technology is advancing so rapidly now that now you no longer need to get certain images of people and, and, and imagine. Now, a woman could simply give her face, a picture of herself to somebody, and that person, some sick-minded person could simply take that person's face and have AI do the rest. And literally, have all types of immoral, disgusting, horrible thoughts with your wife in mind, with your daughter in mind. Who wants to be that person other than a low life? So social media is discussed uh, extensively in the Torah, in the uh, oral Torah, in the written Torah, in Alacha, and it all begins with our treatment of morality, our treatment of holiness, and needless to say, how modest we want to live our life. Rabbi, what about woman's choice? 
Woman's choice. If you're talking about woman's choice, uh, for me, you know, meaning that abortion, uh, according to the Torah, abortion is considered 100% murder. That's what the Rambam paskins la lecha, that a woman that aborts her baby uh, while she's pregnant, uh, unless it's a life risk for her, meaning if the woman is a, uh, you know, got some type of illness and the pregnancy is a, uh, is, uh, is uh, um, a pregnancy that must be terminated in order to save her life, then there's uh, a mitzvah to, uh, to end that pregnancy because the, the mother is first. But if she simply wants to end the life of this baby because it's not uh, appealing to her to be pregnant at this time of her life, it wasn't planned, the guy is not her husband, or uh, I don't know, she doesn't have enough money, or whatever it is, that's considered murder. So murder, she will have to suffer the, uh, the, uh, the punishment for murder. And one of the things that the uh, Arizal uh, tells us in Shara Gilgulim is that uh, part of the punishment for people is uh, not just Genom, not just Kafakela, but also reincarnation, where a woman that uh, you know, aborted a child uh, will have to be reincarnated as an abortion, meaning she will one day be that child that is going to be cut up in 50 million pieces by some doctor telling you, no, it's not a big deal, it's, you're in and out in the office, no big deal. She will have to endure the same exact thing that she did to that baby and the boyfriend or the husband, whoever is helping her, whoever is paying for it, and all of the nurses and the doctors, all of them will have to come back as uh, abortions themselves as many times as they did it. As many times. And even more so, uh, the whatever uh, uh, destruction that led to will also be part of the punishment. So, uh, choice, yes, everyone has a choice, but the choice has a price. There's a price. Now, as far as choice, in a sense, where people are preaching uh, uh, the, the feminist movement of, uh, you know, we should have equal choice, we should have equal rights, we should have equal this and equal that, this week's parasha, this week's parasha tells you that is mumbo-jumbo. It doesn't exist in the Torah. There is no such thing as equality. If there was equality, then God would have made all of the tribes have the same exact rules, the same exact numbers, the same exact reward, the same exact everything. But we see it's not the case. We see that the tribe of Levi is fewer than everybody else by a huge amount. And we also see that the reason why the tribe of Levi was designated as such is not that that was the original plan, but rather that this was the plan after the tribe of Reuven, who was the firstborn, they screwed up. Ruven screwed up, made a, a mistake. He lost his firstborn rights, but he lost his position. His descendants and the descendants of the other tribes that were firstborn served the golden calf. And as soon as they served the golden calf, all of them lost their position of priesthood, and the priesthood was given to the Levi tribe because they're the only ones that didn't serve the golden calf. So from there we see that the gifts, the gifts that God gives you are not equal. Some get more, some get less, based on effort, based on difficulty, but even more so, we see that a person can lose certain things that God gives them. In fact, the tribe of Ephraim gets a special gift. That's where Yeshua Benun was part of. The tribe of Ephraim was given a gift by God that they will always be the tribe that will be utilized to destroy Amalek. Why? Because Yeshua Benun sacrificed his life 
for the sake of honoring God and honoring his name and fighting against Amalek was one of those things. And therefore God promised him that he will always use him and his descendants to destroy Amalek. So from there we learn another lesson about our God, which is gifts are different. There is no equality of gifts and blessings, but even more so, while the firstborns lost their blessing and that was given to the Levi tribe, the gifts that the Ephraim tribe got cannot be taken away. Why? Because they earned that blessing. The Levi tribe didn't necessarily earn the blessing like the uh, tribe of Ephraim. So gifts that are gifted to, by Hashem without our effort can be taken away. Gifts that were earned through effort cannot be taken away. So again, we see that our Creator, the King of Kings, Ishtabach Shimolaad, does not think like people that everyone should be equal and get paid equal and do equal. He's not a communist. And anyone that thinks that everything should be equal is simply a communist in disguise. That's all they are. There is no such thing as equality. Different people have different roles in life. If a person wants to be a servant of God, they have to eliminate all thoughts of equality from their mind and understand they have a role, their spouse has a role, their kids have a role, their rabbi has a role, their students have a role. Uh, everyone has a role in life. There's no such thing as equal. Even your hands. Your hands are not equal. If all of your hands are the same length, you're deformed. If all of your fingers are the same length, you're a deformed person. Equality is deformity. So we don't want to be deformed. Just as the Talmud teaches us, just like their faces are different, their opinions are different. Same concept. There's no such thing as equality according to the Torah. Equality is anti-Torah. Are Ethiopian Jews real Jews? 100%? The, uh, the investigation of the poskim uh, spearheaded by Rav Yuvadi Yosef, Allah Shalom, confirmed that the Ethiopian Jews are 100% Jews, that they uh, had the uh, heritage for, uh, Hashem, for a couple thousand years. Uh, and uh, in fact, the, uh, this was confirmed and... Uh, uh, vastly, everyone uh, of the Jewish people and the leaders agreed with Rav Vadya. There are uh, an exception. Uh, I believe that the um, uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe didn't agree uh, from Chabad. Uh, but uh, needless to say, the, the rest of Judaism, the rest of the leaders of Judaism accepted the Ethiopian Jews and still accepts the Ethiopian Jews as precious neshamot that are 100% Jewish. Uh, without any uh, doubt whatsoever. And in fact, there are many Talmidei uh, Chachamim that are coming from that community now. There's one particular one that I'm familiar with, uh, Rav Gizi. He is an extraordinary Talmid Chacham. He reminds me actually of my rabbi. He reminds me of Rabbi Ephraim so much. Literally, it's like a, uh, a identical. In certain aspects, they're identical. 
uh, and he's an extraordinary Talmud Chacham, very, uh, very learned, very modest, and also very fresh. Like he's, uh, he speaks to the speaks to the heart. He knows exactly how to uh, uh, to lead, and uh, he's also an Ishemet. You know, they they wanted to choose him to be part of the uh, the government, and he quit after one day. The moment that he saw that he can't really be a hundred percent ish emet, if he's in his government, there's going to be all types of distractions to him doing kiruv and helping people uh, learn Torah. After one day, which was a huge job, lots of money, all that good stuff, he quit after one day. So, it's important that uh, a person know that uh, anyone that tells you that Ethiopian Jews are uh, are not Jews is one hundred percent wrong. And they're going against the great sages of of of, uh, of Israel. And even if someone were to say, "Listen, I uh, you know I'm a Chabadnik, and uh, we don't accept the Ethiopian Jews as Jews," you are going against the sages. You're going against the Torah by doing so. Why? Because the moment that not only Ravadia but the rest of the great scheme of the generation determined that the Ethiopian Jews are Jews, doesn't make a difference. The minority opinion is no longer valid. Minority, you can't just choose the minority in this case. That's the Gemarai Masechet Rosh Hashanah, page 14a. Says the Kula de Bet Shammai, the Kula de Bet Hilel, Rashahu, a person that's looking for leniencies on both sides, in so many words, or stringencies on both sides. Someone that's looking to pick and choose whatever they want is considered a wicked person. So there's no such thing. Once we know that the, uh, uh, the sages have, uh, have determined something, the minority opinion is no longer considered. Uh, and therefore, that uh, even if someone were to say that uh, they uh, want to agree with uh, you know, the, the minority opinion of the past, once it was determined that they're Jewish, and they've already been uh, Jews already for more than a generation. I remember when I was in school in Israel as a kid, the, uh, that's where a big part of the immigration of the Ethiopian Jews uh, started uh, coming to the community we were living in in Netanya, and a few of them came to our school. They were very, very nice kids, very quiet. Uh, it certainly uh, came from uh, uh, good, uh, modest homes, but the point is they had a lot of difficulty, and they still have a lot of difficulty, but they, Baruch Hashem, have overcome a lot of difficulty. Anyone that says that they're not Jewish is simply going against the Torah, and will be punished for it as a result. Just, there's always a additive to that. Is Ashkenaz and Ashkenazi the same race and people? You're probably not Jewish. You're asking me this question. Usually the only people that care about Ashkenaz, Ashkenazi, are people that are coming from the Hearing the nonsense of the um, uh, of of the black Hebrew Israelites that somehow turned all Jews into Ashkenazi Jews. Now I've said this uh, before, and I'll say it again: Jews are not just Ashkenazi Jews. In fact, the uh, Jews have no look and no uh, uh, um, culture that uh, that is only that. Meaning that. There are Jews that are all over the world, throughout all of the generations. Some of the great sages that we have, that we've mentioned in lectures, come from Turkey, come from Morocco, come from Tripoli, come from uh, Poland, come from uh, Russia, uh, come from Spain, come from Egypt, uh, 
uh, literally the, 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 the sages, the, uh, the Iraq, uh, Syria, there's so many great sages, so many great Jewish communities throughout all of the generations that are, you know, not just Ashkenazi Jews, there are Sephardi Jews, there are Yemenite Jews, there are Ethiopian Jews, there are Italian Jews, there are, uh, uh, you know, there's many different types of Jews out there. And unfortunately, when people watch too much TV and they think that the uh, Seinfeld and uh, the other, uh, 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 you know, Jewish guys that are on television, uh, they are somehow the representatives of Judaism, even though they themselves don't follow Judaism. It's, it's simply being a small-minded person. So you have to understand, if you want to uh, uh, know what Jews are, you have to look at what the Torah says. Not necessarily what the Jewish people on TV do. Uh, sometimes people that are born Jewish are the worst representatives of what Judaism is. Just like sometimes a uh, black or Asian or Indian person is the worst representative of his culture. He could be a criminal, he could be a lowlife, he could be a thief. Does that mean that all of the people that come from his background are also thieves? No. Does that mean that everybody's a criminal? No. So that's the thing. People have to understand that you can't be such a small-minded small person and take an entire nation that's the oldest nation of all nations that have a history more detailed than any other history out there in the world and minimize them to a, a few people that somehow hit the media over the last couple hundred years. This is obviously ridiculous. People have to educate themselves and understand that a, uh, certainly there is uh, many great people that uh, have come from all parts of Judaism, but there are also some people that are bad that came from all parts of Judaism. There's no doubt there's, there's a, a bad apple in every uh, pile, uh, but that's not unique to the Jewish people. That's every people. And in fact, if you do the comparison of good versus bad, I am 100% certain that a whole lot more good has come from the Jewish people uh, versus bad in comparison than any other country in the world, in comparison to any other culture in the world. Like, if you compare all the good that the Jewish people have produced versus all the good that everybody else has produced throughout all of the history, there's no comparison. There is no comparison in any, 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 any aspect. Now, does that mean that the, uh, everybody else is bad? No. It simply means that God chose the Jewish people to do a lot of different things, and it's shown in, 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 in actual reality. It's not like a, just simply a blank statement. If you look at, the, uh, uh, at religion, all the, the monotheistic religions started with, from Judaism. There was no Islam, there was no Christianity, Catholicism, and all of the different versions and sects of it without Judaism. So that alone, that's the religious world. The judgment, uh, judicial court, that comes from the Torah. That comes from Pashat Yitro. The entire legal system, it, the, the root of all of it, comes from the Torah, comes from Judaism. All of it comes from the Judaism. So it's, it's again, of course, people have a, uh, 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 changed certain things and, 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 and customize it to their own likings, but legal system, court system, all of that comes from the Torah. All of it. The uh, 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 different inventions, uh, whether it be steel or uh, other types of uh, 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 things, also came from the Torah. But in addition to that, you have the, in the scientific world, no one is more established uh, than, as far as representation than the Jewish people, the, uh, the uh, uh, Nobel Prize winners. And all of the Nobel Prize winners that, uh, that exist throughout all of history, the Jewish people have won 
over 25% of all the Nobel Prizes, even though our, the, the, uh, the number of Jews in the world is very few in comparison to all of the other nations. I mean, maybe you have 15, 20 million Jews in the world that we know of, in comparison to the number of, let's say, uh, uh, Muslims in the world, that's a pro, you know, two more than two billion. Yet, if you look at the number of uh, of uh, Muslims that have won Nobel Prize uh, in history, it doesn't exist. Literally, doesn't exist. Think, I think maybe they won once or twice or nothing. Like the number of of, of it's not even a percentage. Whereas the Jews that have less than, than 1% of the population have won more than 25% of the Nobel Prize. The Nobel Prize is not a Jewish organization. In fact, it's a, uh, many of them are, are not exactly uh, uh, fans of Jews. But it's a reality. Uh, the technology that people use in the world today, uh, that, uh, whether it's the technology to see me, the technology to communicate, technology for phones, technology for semiconductors that's in every computer and every phone and pretty much every uh, everything that you have. That's Jewish people. Jewish people invented that stuff. So it's not just Nobel Prize winnings. It's not just technology. It's not just uh, philosophy, the art. It's not just that. It's everything. God simply decided to use the Jewish people for a lot of different things in the world. He obviously chose them for a bigger cause, which is to follow his Torah, but even when we didn't follow the Torah, or when we did follow the Torah, there were also you know, a lot of other things that the Jewish people have attributed to the world, much more than any other nation throughout all of history. So that's not something that anyone can challenge. And this is why it's ludicrous when people are anti-Semitic, uh, because how could you be anti-Semitic when you're using our stuff? That, that you have to, in fact, thank us for it every day, not be anti-Semitic. So that's, again, that's why anti-Semitism generally, just like any other hate, comes from ignorance. People don't understand what they're doing and why they're doing it, and, uh, but somebody's telling them to do it, and they're simply being sheep. And, uh, you know, sheep uh, eventually get slaughtered. Greeks and Romans contributed more than the Semites? Yeah, they contributed homosexuality. Uh, so yeah, if you're, if you're one of those LGBTQ people, then sure, they contributed uh, to that. Uh, as far as their buildings and everything else, you should look at history, or if you want, you could actually go to the buildings in Rome, go to the buildings in Greece, and uh, find out who built them. The Colosseum, what do you think, the Romans built it? No, the Jews built it. Go look, go to the Colosseum, go get on a plane, go to the Colosseum, see what's on the walls, the pictures of menorahs, Jewish people carrying it, look at the architecture, or simply read the books. Who were the ones that built the Colosseum? Who were the ones that built all of these things? Jewish people built them. So even the things you think are contributions from the Romans weren't created by the Romans. You just have to learn. You just have to learn. What can I tell you? It's a, this is not a competition, but you're simply uh, uh, making uh, uh, wrong assumptions, uh, thinking that uh, what you saw in movies is reality. Uh, if you want to see reality, you have to do a little bit more than watch movies. Reality is not necessarily always entertaining. Uh, as far as, what's the next question? 
That was one over here. Uh, what do I think of the Shabtai Tzvi and uh, Yaakov Frank? Uh, obviously, both of them are uh, uh, wicked people in Gehenom. In fact, if anyone wants to know what happened to Shabtai Tzvi after he died, you can pick up the sefer called Minchat uh, Yehuda. Minchat Yehuda by Rabbi Yehuda Ftaya. Alava uh, Shalom says that there was a, uh, this was like a personal journal of Rabbi Yehuda Ftaya. He lived about 100 years ago, uh, or less actually. And um, less than 100 years, much less than 100 years actually. Anyway, he, uh, he was, uh, you know, a Kabbalist, a very famous Kabbalist that uh, did things that uh, before him we didn't see in a few hundred years. And one of the main things that he was involved in is to remove dibukim from people, people that had uh, all types of uh, spirits enter them. Usually the spirits that enter them are wicked people. There are exceptions, but uh, like the one in the story of Rabbi Chaim Ivolozhin, he had to remove a dibuk, but the dibuk itself was actually a righteous person that uh, entered for a specific cause. Perhaps maybe we'll uh, discuss that another time. Uh, but anyway, this uh, Dibukim, uh, you know, there's movies made after it. That's, again, they obviously take it and, and, and destroy the story with all types of falsehood and idolatry. Uh, but uh, uh, this is like, you know, the movies that talk about exorcism and stuff like that. It's actually, part of it is real. Meaning that there are spirits that enter people. And, uh, but, uh, but the one thing that they don't tell you in a movie is that no one from the church could ever remove it because many times the reason why the spirit enters the person is because of idolatry. Uh, the only ones that, are, that succeed in removing these dibukim are actually holy uh, Kabbalists, Jewish people that are very, very holy and uh, uh, very learned in specific types of Kabbalah. Uh, but anyway, the um, uh, Rabbi Daftaya, one of the uh, stories in the Minchat Yudah is his personal encounter with the Dibuk, with the soul of Shabtai Tzvi. And uh, this is a, uh, uh, it's the whole experience, it's the whole uh, uh, thing that happened. Initially, Shabtai Tzvi uh, lied about who he is, which is very common uh, among Dibukim. They usually don't tell you who they are initially until you force them by saying holy names of God and different uh, statements that you make, which causes them pain because the sanctity uh, is like fire on them. Uh, but anyway, he uh, he actually uh, um, removed him, but it was a very, very long and uh, arduous process. And uh, this is not just something that is known from, uh, from books. This is something where there's personal eyewitnesses to all of this, one of them being the author, the one that um, uh, publicized the book later on also is, is, was actually the Talmud of... Uh, uh, that was with him throughout all of this, but also someone that I personally know actually was, uh, was is uh, the uh, nephew of Rabbi Yudaftaya, and he was there uh, at that time. And he actually says when he was very, he was very young at the time, obviously. His mother was, is Rabbi Yudaftaya's sister. And uh, he says that when this whole thing happened with Shabtai Tzvi, uh, literally the, the, the streets went wild, people went wild, it, did a, it was a whole big uproar, everybody found out about it, and it was a very, very big uproar, there was a lot of uh, stuff going on, uh, but uh, this, was, this went on for a long time, this went on for a long time, and uh, how do I know this person, uh, since he's obviously very, uh, very old, is that he's the Gabai in our Bet Knesset in Israel, the, uh, the Kolel that we have in Israel, where our Rosh Kolel Rav Shavit 
uh, is the Rosh Kolo over there. The Gabai is the Rabbi uh, Daftaya's uh, sister's son. So he's his nephew. And he told us all this uh, story, told to Rabbi Ephraim and so on. So point being is, obviously it's in the books. You can open the Minchat Yehuda and, and see it there. Uh, but uh, this uh, exorcism is uh, certainly something that uh, is real. Uh, if it comes from Judaism. If it comes from other places, then it's a lot of fairy tales. But either way, it's a... Um, uh, one of, you know, these people, the Shabtai uh, Tzvi and Yaakov Frank, he, they, uh, they, the wicked people that uh, were part of the false messiahs. Just like Yeshua Nutsri, uh and just like many other people uh, tried to make themselves into something that they're not, namely uh, Mashiach, uh, they uh, unfortunately did it and they succeeded for a while because they knew something. They knew a few things uh, and they knew how to manipulate uh, not only people, but they actually knew how to manipulate reality. They were able to move stuff and do stuff. Uh, in fact, the Sefer Doresh Tov by our own dear Rabbi Ephraim, uh, he writes that uh, one of the great sages at the time of, uh, of uh, Yaakov Frank uh, he uh, writes himself that uh, uh, when Yaakov Frank was, uh, 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 you know, trying to get all the Jewish people to follow him, he tried to use the power of the church to force them to uh, to come listen to him, uh, because he knew that the church obviously was very powerful, uh, and he cared less about whether it's idolatry or not. So he had the church force the leaders of the Jewish people to come and debate him. And uh, whoever is, uh, you know, wins is in essence becomes the powerful person, uh, the leader, with the backings of the church. And uh, anyway, when he came, you know, the uh, he made you know the, uh, some some supernatural things and uh, said certain things, and, and and some people were you know impressed by it, except the rabbi that actually wrote about all this. And. Uh, Yaakov Frank noticed this, and he says, uh, why are you uh, not impressed? I could even bring your parents back from the dead. And uh, they'll confirm that I'm the Mashiach, that I'm the reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi, and I'm the Mashiach, and so on. And he told him, go ahead. And all of a sudden, these two people uh, come, you know, they, uh, they're covered with the robes, similar to how they were in the church, where it's all red, and it's you know covers everything. And of course, there's hundreds and hundreds of people watching this, and these two people are coming, they're crying, and then they unfold the, uh, the face part, and they show their faces, and it's actually his parents. It's the rabbi's parents. And they're crying to him, saying, oh, we just uh, came from heaven to tell you, you have to listen to, uh, to him. He is the Mashiach, he's this, he's that. And uh, so everybody was amazed, like, oh, you see, he's that, look at that, he's really the Mashiach. The, uh, the rabbi took his uh, stick, he had a walking stick, he took it and he smashed both of them on the head, both of these people that looked exactly like his parents, and after hitting each one of them once, they both collapsed under the, uh, the gown that they were wearing, or whatever, this thing that they were wearing, this jacket I guess they were wearing, and when people lifted the jacket, they saw two dead dogs. So the Yaakov Frank was confirmed that he used witchcraft in order to manipulate reality and use the... Because uh, you still have to use uh, things that are alive in order to make stuff like that. So he used two uh, dogs and uh, to appear like people. In so many words, this is part of witchcraft. Uh, but uh, this is documented. 
this is a uh, known, and uh, their end is also known that there, uh, you know, there's uh, no end to their suffering. You guys have different questions than the uh, typical crowd, so I like it. Okay, maybe at least 10 times the same guy is asking if I know some imam. I don't know any imams. I'm not interested in any imams. Uh, I'm interested in truth. I know that the, uh, there were some uh, uh, speakers that represent uh, uh, Islam that were uh, very charismatic and uh, they knew how to speak and they knew certain documentation uh, by heart and they impressed upon the people and so on. But that does not make them speakers of truth. That simply makes them slick-tongued speakers that uh, know how to convince people of lies. That's all it does. What is the what? Organization goal? Ah, okay, very good question. Why does it say in the morning blessings, thank you for not making me a woman? Very good, very good question. Now, the heretics and people that uh, like to mock Judaism that used to be religious, like for example, that woman that had uh, some show on television showing how she abandoned Orthodox Judaism and now she adopted a promiscuous, provocative, disgusting life and uh, that's all because she had some bad experiences uh, while she was religious uh, and uh, she one of the things that uh, she uh, highlights is that uh, she wants the uh, morning blessings of the Jewish people that is obviously uh, many 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 hundreds of years old generation uh, generational uh, teachings that we have she wants it to change. Why? Because to her likings, it's not appropriate for the man to say, thank you for not making me a woman. Uh, whereas uh, the woman says, thank you for making me as you, uh, according to your will. Because she says it's not right. She wants, uh, you know, why not? Why is, why is the man not happy that he's not a woman? So what do you want? The man to want to be a woman? You already have plenty crazy people in society today that want to be something that they're not. You don't need the Torah to, uh, to contribute to that. 
Uh, if you want crazy people, there's plenty of crazy people in society already. But on the other hand, the reasons behind the two things are as follows. The reason why the, the, uh, the, the um, men say, thank you for not making me a woman, is because a man that knows the value of Torah and the value of the obligation that's on the man to learn Torah in the morning and at night, to make Torah the priority in their life, the mitzvahs, the, uh, the, the tools that, they, that lead their life, uh, and, and in essence are, are how they operate in life, uh, but primarily the, the fact that the man has much more responsibilities to learn Torah and to fulfill mitzvot than the woman does, then a man that knows the value of that thanks Hashem for that, uh, for that uh, opportunity. It's just like, for example, somebody gave you the uh, opportunity to, uh, to be the uh, CEO of a company and you're going to have, you're going to be the chief rainmaker. You're going to be the guy that's a chief rainmaker that's going to be the number one salesman of the company, the leader of the company, the guy that doesn't sleep very much because you have to work so much and you have to run this organization and that organization and that division and, and, and deal with all levels of employees, the executive level, the lower level, the ones in a union, the ones in a non-union. You have all these responsibilities, but you're not going to say, ah, this is too much for me. I don't want this. You're going to say thank you. Why? Because you also, with that responsibility, you also get paid accordingly. You know, the, the, the biggest uh, uh, salary goes to that guy. So certainly you're going to say thank you for the opportunity. Now, on the other hand, the, uh, the woman says, thank you for making, you, uh, making me as uh, according to your will. Number one, it's very appropriate for a woman to say that simply because it's thanking Hashem for, for making her in the first place. That's number one. Number two, making her according to his will, that means that you made me as part of your plan. Not just your will like, oh, I'm less than a man, but rather you made me according to your will to populate this world, to give this world life. Life does not come from the man alone. There has to be a woman. There has to be a woman. And the woman is the reason why the man has any ability to continue existing beyond his own life. The woman is the one that uh, is a, has the responsibility to carry these and raise the children that are going to be the next generation. The women and their righteousness is the reason why Hashem took us out of Egypt. And the women and their righteousness are the reason why Hashem is going to send the Messiah. So God is, in essence, made her part of his whole plan. Yes, the man is responsible for doing all of these different jobs. He has to be grateful for it because he gets rewarded for it. But the woman has a completely different role. She is part, she, it's not, she doesn't have a job at the company. She is the industry. She's part of the whole plan. She's part of the whole thing. The industry doesn't exist without her. So yeah, of course, thank you for making me according to your will, according to this whole plan, your will for creation, your will for existence, your will for eternity. I'm part of that. What woman wouldn't say thank you for that? But only a demented, delusional, heretical person that is unlearned or learned incorrectly is going to think that that is a negative thing. Because, oh, what? Uh, he's saying thank you, and I'm saying thank you, but he's saying thank you for not making me her, so that's, that means that I'm not really good. No, 
Only people that are self-conscious and clueless and ignorant determine their own self-worth based on somebody else's description. You need to know your own self-worth based on you. Not based on what he or she or they think of you. Based on you. If you know that you're following the laws of God, the instructions of God, then God himself says, it was worth it to create you. It's good I created you. Why? You're fulfilling your purpose in the world. So what about if he doesn't like me and she doesn't like me and they don't like it? To make a difference. Maggots are going to eat them one day. Worms are going to eat them for lunch one day. Who cares what they think? Who cares what people think? Who cares? If you're doing what God thinks is good, what difference does it make what anybody in the world thinks is good? On the other hand, if you're not doing what God thinks is good, and you think you're doing what people think is good, and guess what? People will let you down. Eventually, they'll stab you in the back. Eventually, they're not going to think what you're doing is good. And eventually, you're going to see that whatever good you did, they only agreed with so long as they had a benefit from it. And it really wasn't good that they were happy for you, but good that you were benefiting them. And the reality is that you'll see that the more you try to please people, the more miserable you will become. The more you try to do the will of Hashem, the more fulfilled you will become. Good answer. Baruch Hashem. Let's see what our guys in uh, Facebook are saying. I took enough questions from TikTok for now. Let's see what Facebook is saying. Oh, wow. Facebook is full of questions today. Uh, let's see. I met a Lubavitcher last week who was a Meshichist, which means that he believes that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Allah Shalom, that died is the Mashiach. And asked him, how could the Rebbe be Mashiach? And if he uh, died, he answered me, the Rebbe only died physically, but is still living spiritually. He's not the first one I've heard uh, from this. Okay, so what's the question? What's the question? Uh, can they be counted for Minyan and Edim, uh, other Allahic needs? Rav uh, uh, Keller, one of the Gdoleado in, um, in America, uh, said that uh, the... Uh, the um, Elokistim, the one that think that the Lubavitcher Rebbe is God, those you cannot count in Minyan, they are uh, considered 100% Apikosim. The Meshichis, the ones that believe that the Lubavitcher Rebbe is Mashiach, but just Mashiach, not God or supernatural or anything like that, you can count them in Minyan. Uh, but you should not go to their minyan and you should not support their organizations in any way because they are not teaching the truth and they're very problematic. But there are some chachamim that say that you can't. Uh, that, uh, but needless to say, it's a uh, problematic according to everybody else's opinion that's outside of Chabad. And even some people within Chabad know that these meshichists are very problematic. There was actually a chacham within Chabad 
that uh, got uh, public support for his writings uh, while the Lubavitcher Rebbe was alive, including support from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he actually wrote against these Meshichists shortly after the uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, uh, died and because he saw how terrible things were going and so on. And uh, they pretty much uh, lynched him, uh, you know, where they uh, took away his job, they took away, they caused him a lot of problems for many, many years. But he, uh, he was a very serious Talmud Chacham, and, and uh, they, uh, he spoke about it, wrote about it, and, uh, you know, he was from within Chabad. He was, you know, and uh, he spoke against it. But again, these Meshichites, unfortunately, are, uh, are very problematic. But uh, I don't think that there are any uh, more problematic than the ones that think, uh, like Manus, that uh, God needs you. Anything that's outside of the truth of the Torah is problematic. Just, just put it that way. Uh, next one. How do we get out of a spiritual plateau? Uh, how do we regain the initial connection with Hashem and miracles that it experienced uh, when you first started doing tshuva? So a uh, Arav, um, uh, Yankale Galinsky. Arav Yankale Galinsky, Allah Shalom. He had a uh, couple. Uh, that uh, came to him and asked him a question. They were new Baalei Tshuva. And uh, they told him, Rabbi, we just experienced a miracle and want to tell the Rabbi that uh, something amazing. And he said, what happened? He said, uh, he said listen, we, uh, we just started keeping Shabbat. And, you know, the first couple of weeks were going okay. And then this uh, past week, you know, it was raining. And we're like, oh, what are we going to do? We go to, go, go to uh, synagogue, it's raining, it can't, you know, I'm not going to get wet, what am I going to do? We figured, you know, let's just go downstairs and wait until the rain stops. And as soon as we went downstairs, literally, as soon as we got to the door, the rain stopped. And we thought it was pretty cool, but, you know, we continued walking for, you know, a good 10, 15 minutes. And then, as soon as we literally went under the roof of the synagogue, the rain started again. Unbelievable, Rabbi. And it happened again on the way home. It stopped and started. And they're like so excited about it. But then they see that Rav Galinsky's face is not excited at all. And they ask him, Rabbi, aren't, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that this, this miracle happened? He said, yeah, yeah, Baruch Hashem. So, so why aren't you like amazed? He says, I would be amazed if you would have told me a story that it was raining outside and you went to synagogue anyway and you got wet, then I would be amazed. So he's asked him why. He says, because you're new, you're new to the uh, tshuva, Hashem knows that you're not able to take big tests. So he doesn't give you big tests that you can't handle. So you know that if it rains, you're not going to go to synagogue. So he stopped the rain for you. Both on the way, on the way back, he stopped it for you. Just for you. What's going to be really amazing is when he doesn't stop the rain for you because that's going to show that you've grown spiritually enough for Hashem not to make you the same miracle because he knows that you can handle it. That'll be amazing because that shows as a testament from Shemaim that you have grown. So on one end, we want miracles. On another end, we don't want miracles. Another end, we don't want miracles. One end, we do want miracles. What gives? So we have to understand. If a person wants a deeper connection with Hashem, they have to take on more on themselves. 
than what they were doing the year before. If last year you were studying a half hour a day, this year you have to study 45 minutes, an hour a day. If last year you were studying an hour a day, this year you got to study an hour and a half, two hours a day. If last year you were studying two hours a day, this year you have to study three, four hours. Whatever you did last year, do more. More learning Torah, more mitzvot, more tzedakah, more chesed. Whatever you're doing, do more. Now don't shoot to the, for the moon and then crash to below the earth. We'll say, oh, you, last year you studied for a half hour a day and this year I'm going to study 10 hours a day. Like this young kid told me a few weeks ago, Rabbi, I'm going to be like Moshe Rabbeinu soon. I'm going to be like Moshe Rabbeinu soon. He just started doing tshuva two months ago. I'm going to be like Moshe. I'm going to, I need to learn everything about Moshe Rabbeinu and I'm going to be just like him in a few months. Okay. Yeah, there's not, you don't really respond to these things. You say, Chazaku Baruch and Bezal Hashem, you know, you grow up very soon. It's cute. He's little. He's like 13 or something like that. Not that little. But anyway, uh, he wants to be Moshe Rabbeinu next week. All that means that he doesn't know what Moshe Rabbeinu is. But the key is to understand that you can't just shoot for the moon and say, I studied last year for an hour a day and this year I'm going to do five hours. No. One step at a time. One step at a time. So you did an hour, do an hour and a half. Do two hours. Do things that you can achieve, you can attain because the biggest part of a test is not the first day. It's the 100th day, the 200th day, the 300th day. It's continuous. It's continuous. This is also why somebody asked me recently, you know, why I don't do, uh, uh, you know, personal uh, classes with people. You know, some people want to pay me a lot of money so I could do like personal classes with them. You know, it's like I do with you guys, but they just want to just, you know, one-on-one -on -one or whatever, a few people with me. And I always say no. And, uh, and they ask me why. I say, because I know that if I commit to doing it now, I'm committing forever. I'm not, you're thinking I'm committing for now, for this week, for next month, for two months from now, for three months from now. In my mind, if I'm doing it, I'm doing it for the rest of my life. I'm not ready to commit to you for the rest of my life. And this group of two or three or four people, I'm just not ready to do it. So it's a uh, same concept with different phone calls. You know, different people always get upset because uh, they, they want to talk to me on the phone and I don't generally speak on the phone. Uh, it's a uh, relatively rare to ever get me on the phone. Uh, and that's intentional. It's not uh, uh, just because I'm busy. Even when I'm not busy, I don't go on the phone. And it's rare for me not to be busy, but generally I don't go on, I don't, I don't speak on the phone. Why? Because I know that once I start it, it's never going to be over. It's just, it's, it's going to turn into like a weekly thing or a monthly thing. And I've, you know, I've tried getting out of my own element once in a while to test it out. You know, a few people would want to call me and uh, talk. And usually it's about nothing meaningful that, uh, that can't be discussed via text message or WhatsApp. And they want to chit chat for five minutes, for 10 minutes, for 40 minutes or whatever other time that I could really be doing something much more, much better. But they want to do it, and uh, I can't. I can't keep up because now they expect me to do it every time they call, or every time they want me to call, or once a week, or once a month, or whenever they feel like it. I just can't make those commitments. I have too much going on. I have too many projects to go on. I have employees. I have the different people that I have to help in Israel, feeding the poor. It's not easy. I have uh, Torah scholars that we have to help to, to feed them, to help them, to send them cameras, to help them teach, to help them. Uh, uh, learn, uh, Baruch Hashem, I'm, uh, you know, the books, Baruch Hashem, either distributing them or writing them, translating them, the videos, the lectures, is a million and a half things to do. 
I don't have time to socialize and say, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? How are you? How are you? How are you? How are you? Five hours. Can't. I just don't have that kind of time. What I can do, I can send you a little sticker on the WhatsApp, say, Chazaku Baruch, Baruch Hashem, Bezat Hashem. That, Baruch Hashem, I think is good. I think it's good. And what happens? Sometimes when I did it and I, I made the phone call or, or I answered the phone more, more usually, when somebody called me and I would talk to them on the phone, and, you know, this would happen a couple of times. And then one day they would call me and I wouldn't answer the phone. And they would leave a message and I wouldn't call them back. And I would instead text them and they would take this offensively. Oh, what's going on? Oh, are you too busy for me now? Oh, it's this now? Oh, that's all it is now? No, no, it has nothing to do with you. It's just that I don't have time. If you want to write the books and you want to translate them and you want to pay the 70 employees and, 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 and help the volunteers and help the scholars and help, go do it yourself. But a person that has this type of life doesn't have time for that stuff. It's, 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 it's simply not, there's not enough time in a day. Honestly, it's, a, uh, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult for me to, to, uh, to learn. Uh, and and I, that's one of the things that makes me very, very jealous of, of people that are new to Torah, that are new to, uh, to Tshuva. Because... When you're new, you have all the time in the world. You could, most of you that are watching it right now could probably study solid 8 to 10 hours a day without disturbing your schedule much. Most people have that kind of free time. What do you have? You have your job. You go to your job at, I don't know, 8 o'clock in the morning. You work till 5 o'clock. After 5 o'clock, usually most people leave their work at, home, at, uh, at, at work at the office. They come home. They have a little dinner. They uh, go to shul. They finish, I don't know, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. They're not going to sleep at 9 o'clock. They're not going to sleep at 9 o'clock. They go to sleep probably at 1 or 12 or something like that. So already right over there, you have free 4 or 5 hours to do whatever you want every single day without anybody bothering you. And if you, you know, take advantage of the times in between, you could easily get 8 hours a day. Easily get 8 hours a day. When people tell me, listen, I can't study more than an hour a day, I know it's an excuse. I used to use the same excuse. Most people have plenty of time and even uh, time to do it during their jobs because most people's jobs are not really that busy. Usually it's like, you know, an entire day for one particular event, one particular meeting, the entire day, one meeting, the entire day, one phone call, the entire day, I don't know, one valuable email or whatever it is. Most of the day is wasted on nothing. Most people do not work most of the day. Most people usually waste time most of the day. They simply heat up the chairs. That's all they do. Most people do not work all day. And that's unfortunately one of the reasons why people are so uh, unproductive. So, but the ones that do work are, uh, you know, are, are usually the, the ones that are either executives or they're the lowest level employees, meaning they're the ones that are like the, the real labor employees that are getting paid the least, like slaves almost. Those guys usually work really, really hard. Or it's the executives that pretty much don't sleep. The people in the middle, many times, they could go through an eight, nine hour schedule, maybe working 15 minutes. So anyway, even if you have a full schedule and your job is whatever it is, average person could easily uh, learn four to eight hours a day without, you know, without disturbing their schedule much. Uh, and that's great. I think it's fantastic for people, but most people don't do it. Uh, so I think that there is a, uh, a lot of responsibility for, for what we do. Baruch Hashem. It's not easy to do uh, uh, any one of these roles, needless to say, all of them. And I thank Hashem for all of it. 
Uh, but that also means that it limits my ability to do certain things that the uh, people want me to do. Uh, calls, parties, uh, events, uh, socializing. You know, somebody uh, asked me today, uh, are you interested uh, or can I send uh, a group of uh, young guys to your house on Shabbat or young people, single people? I think it was guys and girls to your house on Shabbat. And I told no. <laughs> And this is not a usual, usual answer that you get from rabbis. But I told him, no, I'm not interested in having single people come to my house on Shabbat. Uh, quite frankly, I'm not interested in them coming to my house uh, on a regular basis unless I know them and there's a real reason for them to come. I'm not interested in being entertainment for people. Uh, so, uh, it's again, this is also part of the teachings. Number one, there's a lot to do. Number two, having single people come to your house and sleep over is not, is not a, a good idea at all for anybody, not just me. And I've told you, all the married people that, that host single people and let them sleep over, it's a terrible idea. In fact, even letting them come over on a regular basis for Shabbat is not a good idea. Why? Because you and your spouse are still humans. They are still humans, and it's bound to lead to trouble. Many times, these, uh, these uh, types of things lead to trouble. So I don't have to explain for people to understand what I mean. So the point being is that, you know, I, I know that a lot of different uh, rabbis out there like to be hosts. They want to be like the small version of, of Am Avinu. But for my uh, rabbis and their rabbis, and the, uh, what I, I've learned differently. I've learned differently. You can host, but you can't host everybody. And you can't host all the time. And you can't host a, uh, uh, you know, people, uh, specific types of people. So it's, it's a, you have to be more selective. But regardless, that's only if you have that ability to do it in the first place. But if you, uh, that's assuming that you've spent in a, uh, a necessary amount of time with your family and, 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 and there's nothing lacking over there. With my kind of schedule, my, my, it's, it's very, very difficult for me to justify uh, hosting guests uh, uh, on a regular basis at all uh, just simply because uh, I need to spend time with my own family. But anyway, the point is is that uh, all of those people that are offended that I didn't call them back or I didn't respond to their text message or I didn't respond to their emails, it's nothing personal. Usually it's not. <laughs> uh, it's nothing personal. Uh, it's just simply uh, that there's other things that are higher priority. It's not that uh, your needs are not priority but rather because there are uh, things that are something more pressing. But as far as the, uh, the, the original question of elevating yourself to the same level of uh, where you were when you first started doing tshuva, in so many words, if you push yourself the same way that you push yourself when you first started doing tshuva, you will get results. When you first started doing tshuva, you push yourself to new limits that were foreign to you. You know, keeping Shabbat for the first time was foreign to you. Eating kosher all the time, doing all the different mitzvot, praying, that was foreign to you. So now you've become used to all of those things. So now you have to push yourself extra on things that you haven't done yet. So not just keeping Shabbat, but celebrating on Shabbat. Not just a, uh, uh, having a, uh, uh, a prayer, but having prayer with kavanah. Not just studying, but studying uh, something even more difficult or studying for a longer amount of time, or studying for a longer amount of time, something that's more difficult, or both. Uh, you know, it's a, uh, there's more that everybody can do. There's more that everybody can do, there's more that all of us can do, and Bezat Hashem, I will be the first one to, uh, to do everything that I'm saying to you, and do more than what I'm doing. Bezat Hashem.
Uh, Robert, I took a mezuzah from a house that we inspected for a property manager because I didn't want the maintenance people to end up... Uh, excuse me one second. Uh, I took... What? I took the mezuzah we inspected for a property manager. I didn't want the maintenance people to end up throwing it away if they painted the exterior since the tenants moved out. I tried to contact the owner of the mezuzah, but could not only speak to the head of the household since it was a frat house. Uh, that person said they would speak to the Israeli student, but when I called again, he said that he probably didn't care. I don't know what to do with the mezuzah. Uh, at this point, I don't want to come to sin by my ignorance. Uh, how do I want to fix this? Okay, so number one, you should know uh, not to move mezuzahs from houses uh, that have been that have left, because uh, usually if it's a religious Jew and he moves out, he's going to leave the mezuzahs uh, because he's not allowed to leave them uh, uh, leave the house without mezuzahs. Uh, hence the reason why people keep buying new mezuzahs. Uh, now, if he has really expensive mezuzahs like some of the ones that we sell in our store. Uh, that are by Mekubalim and so on, then he can replace those with ones that are cheaper, but he still needs to leave, live, leave uh, mezuzahs unless he knows for a fact that whoever is going to uh, uh, move in there is going to be a non-Jew. If he doesn't know, he has to leave the mezuzahs. And then once he uh, sees somebody's moved in, if it's a Jew, then he could ask the Jew to you know replace it and take the mezuzahs back. But until somebody uh, confirms either that a non-Jew lives there or that the Jew has replaced them, he has to leave the mezuzahs there. So, first word of advice, don't remove mezuzahs from the uh, doors. Usually nobody throws them out. Usually they just paint them, paint over them and that doesn't do anything because the real mezuzah is not the piece of plastic or metal that's the shell, it's the scroll that's inside it. So, number one thing, don't uh, worry about if they paint over it. It doesn't affect the cloth usually. Uh, second thing is, if you have a mezuzah, Go to a local synagogue, Orthodox synagogue that uh, is next to you. Give it to the rabbi. Tell him, uh, you know, this is a mezuzah I uh, got from, you know, same thing that you just told me. Here you go. Give it to one of your uh, congregants that needs it. And that's it. The end. Finished. Uh, you mentioned kids' games in last week's shiur. And I wanted to know, is it permissible to play with sorting toys? such as shape sorters and building toys like uh, Legos on Shabbat. Uh, so if you're playing with Legos or you're playing with uh, different types of toys, uh, even including Monopoly, for example, it's, even though it's not ideal to play Monopoly on uh, Shabbat, anything that's business is not a good thing to do on Shabbat, but uh, still, if you're going to play it, now if you're going to simply just take whatever you want, that's not a problem. Especially if you just, when you finish, you just pour everything back without sorting it, the red ones and the blue ones and the green ones. You're not allowed to do that. If you pour everything back and you just take everything out, there's no problem of, of building it and, and playing with it. That's not a problem. The kids playing Legos is not a problem. If the adult is playing with a kid, it's not a problem. But an adult playing Legos by himself, that could be a problem. But same thing with a ball. A kid playing with a ball on Shabbat, not a problem. An adult playing with a ball on Shabbat, problem. It's considered muktzeh for him. If the adult plays with a kid, his own, you know, his own son, that's not a problem. Uh, so again, it's a uh, to to sort things, to take 
specific colors out, uh, specific uh, things out, that uh, could be uh, uh, problematic uh, if a person is not careful. So it's, it's good for a person to learn the laws of Shabbat in, in issues of borel, borel, uh, B-O-R-E-R in English. And that's sorting. Uh, but again, generally the biggest, uh, the biggest issue is not usually the playing, but rather the putting away. So usually when people play the Monopoly uh, or, or any of these games, they give to different cards or money or whatever it is they give to every person. And then after everybody finishes playing, which usually means that at least a few people got into an argument and no one likes each other anymore. After you finish playing and you hate each other, then one guy is stuck putting everything away. And that guy figures, oh, you know what? Let me put everything nicely. I'll put all the blue ones here and all the green ones here and all the 50s here and all that. That's Chilul Shabbat. That's not allowed at all. So what does he have to do? Take everything that everybody got, pour it all in the box, close the box, go to shul. What about the mess? Fix it after Shabbat. Fix it after Shabbat. So that's, that's how you play. That's how you play. You leave a mess. Um... My son asks, why is it important to have a rabbi? Why were we made why were we made to question things? Also, why were games made? Those are three questions. Uh, having a rabbi is having someone that's going to tell you, number one, what the Torah says. Number two, if what you read in the Torah is the right understanding. Uh, number three, to guide you in life with things that uh, are, you're going through, whether it be business deals or it be uh, family issues or different types of things that are not so simple and literal in the Torah, uh, and the rabbi is supposed to guide you in accordance to the Torah, to give you what's called Da'at Torah. Da'at Torah is the opinion of the Torah according to all matters. Also, to help you uh, conclude specific issues that uh, you don't have the ability to do, uh, pascaning uh, certain issues. So, for example, someone uh, yesterday sent me a uh, question uh, that uh, I would uh, assume, again, I'm not doubting any of your wisdom and, in- and intellects for everybody that's watching here, but I would assume that most people have no idea what I'll be talking about. Uh, but I'll try to explain to my best of my ability. So somebody, for example, yesterday uh, sent me a question. They said that they, uh, they're in Israel. They uh, bought a house in, uh, in the old city in Tzfat. And uh, they... Uh, uh, you know, after they bought the house, they're doing some remodeling in there. Uh, and uh, after doing remodeling for several months, which is still going on, the person that owns the next door house, next door apartment or next door house, contacts him and says, what are you doing? How did you buy this house uh, without notifying me? The owner of the house should have asked me first, if I want to buy the house uh, before he sold it to you, which I do want to buy the house, so therefore you have to sell me the house. You have to sell me the house. Now, Americans, Europeans, and in so many words, everyone that's not Torah knowledgeable says, this guy's crazy. He should go fly kite. And, uh, you know... What are you talking about? What do you mean? I have to sell you. I don't have to do anything. I bought the house. I'm going to live in there. Go away. You would be wrong. Why? Because there is an Allah. It's in the Gemara. It's in the, uh, several places. It's uh, It's called Bar Metzra. 
And what is this? This is a uh, based on the uh, teachings of the Torah where it says that you are not allowed to do something that is, in essence, evil to your neighbor, evil to, to uh, in the eyes of Hashem. So if somebody, for example, had, this is based on a, on a Torah, it says if somebody has a piece of land and uh, he wants to sell it, right? He wants to sell it. Before he announces to the whole world that he wants to sell it, he should offer it to his next door neighbor that also has a piece of land. Why? Because the next door neighbor that has a piece of land would benefit out of combining those lands usually more than anybody else. And could potentially get hurt if anybody else moves into this, to this land. So you have to offer it to him first. And in fact, if you don't offer it to him and you offer it to somebody else, he would actually have the right to kick them out and take over the land. You would pay them for it, whatever they paid for it. And then you have to debate the whole issue of if it went up in value, if it uh, if there was remodeling, there's a whole uh, details of the details in there. But the bottom line is the person that lives there will be able to kick out the person that's moved in. Now, if he said no, and there's witnesses that show that he said no, they signed some type of style, that he said no, he's not interested in buying it, then you can sell it to whoever you want. But if he was never asked, you have a very serious problem on your hand. Now, does that mean that somebody could just simply say, listen, I'm just going to you know, sit there and whoever wants to sell, I'm going to force everybody to sell it to me? No, there are conditions. Number one, is this a property connected, like the example that was given, which is the land? Where you could just walk from one to the other, because there's some scheme that say that the if it's a houses, the houses have to be connected where you can walk from one house to the other. Or it has to, at the very least, be relatively very close to each other. Even if it's not connected directly, it's like one neighbor seeing the other. Like he could use that one house, one apartment as his... Uh, I don't know, a garage or something, and the other house could be like where he lives in. It can't be like down the street or something like that. So, number one, are they, are they in proximity of each other? Are they connected? Number two, is he living there? Or is this just an investment? Number three, how much time has passed since the sale was made that he was supposed to be notified of? And many, many other details that are involved there. And the point is that we actually had to study for uh, for for some time. Or Frayim Bo Hashem Paskin and he went through the whole thing. I did a whole shiur about it. Uh, but this was uh, a, a, what seems to be a small, you know, question to the average person. It's like it's not even a question. What do you mean? He bought the house. He's even remodeling it right now. Go away. What do you mean? You got, you have to sell me the house. I don't have to do anything. That's the logic. Logic is wrong. Logic is wrong. Why? Because if he met all of the conditions, these new owners would be forced to sell him the house. And if they go to a Beddin, the Beddin will paskin that they have to force to sell him the house. But if the conditions are not met, they don't have to sell him the house. So it all depends on the conditions. And you have to know all the conditions. Know the circumstances, know the conditions, know the law. Whole little thing, so that is not something that the average person can do. Even if the person is a talmid chacham, usually talmid chacham has many peers that are talmidei chachamim, and certainly has a rabbi that's a talmid chacham. There is no such thing as a talmid chacham without a rabbi or peers with that are talmidei chachamim. 
people that know a few words here and there and have read a few books are not Talmud Chachamim. They just learn some books. To be Talmud Chacham takes many, many years of toil and and and, uh, and shimush of rabbis and Talmud Chachamim and experience. It's not. Uh, it's not like a. Uh, uh, a scholar in mathematics or in history where if you simply read books, then therefore you possess knowledge. It doesn't work that way. Uh, is it permitted for a Noahide to apply and attend secular classes or at an idolatrous university? Uh, yes, it's permitted, uh, but you have to be very careful and uh, if you could take online classes, it would be better. Which blessing, when repeated, is considered Chilul Hashem, and why? Uh, well, there are many things that, uh, uh, in regards to details about Chilul Hashem, that a person needs to know. First and foremost, all sins are, to a certain extent, Chilul Hashem. Number one. Number two, it's not just blessings, it's also the way that a person uh, says certain things. For example, if a person says Shema Yisrael the wrong way, he has a very serious problem that could even be considered uh, a uh, avak of idolatry, dust of idolatry, or certainly a Chilul Hashem. Where if he says uh, something like Shema Shema, instead of saying Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Instead of doing that, he says, Shema, Shema, meaning here, here. Gemara in Masechet Avodah Zarah says, this person, I think also in uh, Brachot, says this person is a, uh, acting as if there's uh, two gods to hear him. Uh, and and uh, same concept goes with other blessings. So it's also the name of God. How you say the name of God? Uh, so a person needs to be careful with all blessings. The, the rule of thumb is to try to divide every blessing into three, which is Baruch Ata Hashem, Elokenu Melech Olam, and then whatever the ending is. Let's say Shakol Niyamidvaro. But divide it into three, instead of saying blah, 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 and it's like before you you know say Baruch, you already said Hashem. So it's important for a person to say blessings the right way. We've all failed at it at once or twice or a million times, but it's certainly something that all of us can get better at. Uh, as far as a, uh, uh, other blessings, again, it's, a, uh, it's important for a person to be careful with all blessings. Se- second thing is also a blessing that it's done in vain. Meaning, if you've already made a blessing, but you forgot if you made a blessing, and you make another blessing, that's a problem. Why? Because you're using Hashem's name in vain. If you forgot whether you made a blessing or not, don't do the blessing. And the reason why is because blessings are a rabbinical rule. And according to the uh, sages, anything that's rabbinic that's in doubt, you paskin to the leniency, meaning you don't, uh, you don't make the blessing a second time. If you're not sure you did it, uh, uh, because it's, it's worse for you to say God's name in vain than to not say a blessing. Either way, it's not good. It means you don't have enough yirat shamayim, but you forgot whether you made a blessing or not. But the point being is, is that uh, don't say a blessing if unless you're sure you didn't say a blessing, and that's according. For, that's for everything. That's for a asher uh, yatzal. Uh, that's for netilat yadaim. That's for eating. It's for everything. Don't say a blessing unless you know for sure that uh, you haven't done a blessing. Uh, there are some things that you can say a million times a day. For example, Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael, you can say a million times a day if you want, because Shema Yisrael is a verse from the Torah. 
So even if uh, you forgot whether you did Shema Yisrael somehow uh, or not, you could say Shema Yisrael and the whole thing, uh, the whole paragraphs of Shema Yisrael 500 times a day if you want because it's a verse from the Torah. Why does the Tosfot say in Masechet Bava Metzia that Genom for Eshet Ish is only 12 months, that 58b? Shouldn't he never come out? It says uh, he's fully burnt after uh, some uh, Genom. Look at the commentary over there. It's a, uh, what you'll find many times is when they're, they're talking about, they're not talking about the actual sentence itself, they're talking about the judgment. The judgment meaning the judicial court is a 12-month time frame for everybody. Uh, you'll usually have, uh, not usually, you're only going to have two types of numbers stated according to the, the, the judgment. One is 12 months, second one is forever. You're not going to have anything in between. Now only a moron would think that there is only two types of sentences where it's either only 12 months or it's forever. Obviously it's not. So the 12 months is referring to the judgment itself, the judicial court hearing. That's 12 months. The forever is for specific punishments, but there is less than forever. There's three years, there's five years, there's 500 years, there's five million years, there's, there's all types of numbers. Now, Rizal says there's certainly certain sins that by themselves a thousand years in Kafakela, not even Gehenom. There's a Rabbi uh, Udaftaya uh, talks about Minchat Yehuda that the uh, tribe of a, uh, Ephraim that left Egypt before they were supposed to, and they ended up being the ones that right, reincarnated. Uh, they were the ones that got uh, resurrected in the book of Ezekiel, the dry bones. They were in Kafakela for 900 years. They were in Kafakela for 900 years. So the point is, is that it's a, uh, the statements in the Gemara uh, or across the Torah are only going to be 12 months or forever. You're not going to find 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 to 18 years. Why? Because the 12 months is referring specifically for the actual uh, sentence, the, the, uh, the, uh, the judgment, and the forever is a specific sentence for specific sinners. If it only says 12 months, that means it's only referring to the judgment itself as far as the, uh, the court hearing. If it's a uh, if it's uh, saying forever, then it's referring to the sentence. If it's uh, but it's if it says the uh, uh, if it's only says the uh, the judicial hearing, that means that the sentence is not you know it it, it may not be forever, it may be forever, but it's certainly it's going to be more than a year. It's certainly going to be more than a year. So again, it's a uh, uh, a person needs to know that the. Uh, we don't learn Torah from one verse. Like I was saying to some other people on TikTok. We don't learn Torah from one verse or from one place. We have to learn a whole uh, realm of things uh, that, where it mentions uh, and how the Chachamim uh, teach it. Okay, last question I'm going to take because it's actually almost three hours. Is it possible for somebody with a Jewish soul that reincarnated in a non-Jewish body as a punishment to still receive punishment described in Parashat Bechukotai uh, to a certain extent until he converts and returns to the righteous Jewish life. Uh, absolutely. Uh, even if, uh, you know, even if he wasn't uh, uh, that, he can. Sure, sure. The punishments in Parashat Bechukotai are uh, certainly something that can happen to, uh, to people. Sure. If somebody had past friendship with a group of LGBTQ people, but stopped talking to them for a while, but recently contacted a group again without rebuke, 
Should she send your lecture and just leave the group chat or just leave without saying anything? Uh, I mean, it doesn't cost you any time or uh, effort to send a lecture, so I would send a lecture and then leave. Send a lecture and then leave. Okay, Chachamim, Tzadikim, and all of the Baal Tshuva that are taking upon themselves to learn more Torah, to do more mitzvot, please, 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 learn more Torah, do more mitzvot, do more chesed. If you want to be partners with us, and you want to help us do all the things that we're doing with the food distributions, feeding the poor, the free books, all the other good stuff that we do, you could donate on the website, you could donate on Facebook, you could donate on YouTube. There's a lot of places you could donate if you really want. You could send a check too. Uh, either way, there's plenty of opportunities to be partners with us and do all the wonderful things that we do. But more importantly than anything else, keep learning Torah with us. Keep learning Torah with us because that is certainly going to help everybody, uh, whether it's the teacher or the student. Shavua Tov Mevorach, and Bezot Hashem, we will learn again next week.